Hi Jake and Sam, Uh, my name's Carly and I'm recording this in South Australia. I've been a listener of your show for a while and I am very excited to finally have a story to tell. This story happened to my grandparents back in the 60s and I hope I'm remembering all the details correctly. Back in the 60s my grandparents moved from Adelaide to Lee Creek and would often drive between the two places at night time because driving during the day in the hotter months in a car with no air conditioning was unbearable. One time they were driving and it was very late and as they came out of a creek on an isolated road with no other traffic around, they saw everything around them light up like there was a massive spotlight. It was almost like it was daylight. They couldn't see the source of the light, but it went on for long enough that it couldn't have been lightning or anything like that. They had my mum, who was a little baby at the time, in the back of the car, and the dog, and the dog was super freaked out by it. She was growling and barking and shivering and wouldn't calm down until the light disappeared. Grandpa said it was like yeah, someone had put a major, massive spotlight on. They could see everything around them, just like it was daylight. And it lasted for a couple of minutes, disappeared, and it's never happened to them again since. It's just one of those weird stories that could maybe be aliens. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old. Country. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Alright boys and girls, I hope that you are prepared for another delve into ufology. 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 <laughs> ufology. Ufology. Okay. <laughs> They're like, how can we make this more pretentious? Let's pronounce it. It's an abbreviation. Anyway, we're not going to get into that right now. I would like to welcome you all back with a rousing piece of rhetoric that I've prepared for you today. One-eyed, one-eared, flying purple people eater. One-horned. Oh, whatever. We've got to get the sexual symbolism in there. Sorry. Mankind. That word should have a new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united by our common interest. Perhaps... It's fate that today is the 4th of July and that you once again be fighting for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution, (laughs) but from annihilation. We are fighting for our right to live, to exist. And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. It's rousing. It is. It's from Independence Day. I know. The Will Smith movie. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum's in it. Classic. I like Jeff Goldblum. Well, guys, before we get into our episode today, we do want to remind you that you can check out our social media at Just a Story Pod. 
We'd love to hear from you, hear what you think about these episodes, give us episode ideas. You can also check out our website, justastorypod.com, where you can find links to all of our resources, some of Sam's pretty, pretty artwork. Oh, thanks, honey. Our creepy, creepy artwork. Thanks, honey. And you can also find links to our merch store. And that has said creepy, pretty artwork on various items for your purchase. That's true. And we also have a Patreon page where you can become a sustaining member with only half the guilt of NPR. We offer you this opportunity. And if you would like to go sign up, you can contribute to the show and help us do what we do and subscribe to all of those hoity-toity knowledge bases that lock away all their secrets Yeah, behind a paywall. It's true. <laughs> and in the month of May, we will have an alien-centric episode. Merry, merry month of May which I might post a little early to get with these. Another way you can get in touch with us is through the Urban Legend Hotline. You can reach the Urban Legend Hotline by dialing 512-222-3375. There you will reach our voicemail where you can record yourself telling an old-time favorite folk tale, a newfangled urban legend, or something you heard on the internet. It's all true. Everything on the internet is true. Did you know that? It is. It's all very, very true. The aliens put it there. So last week, we talked about the flying saucer craze of the 50s. 40s. And 40s. And some 60s. <laughs> Just like really every five years from 1947 onward, we were having like mass hallucinations about... Not hallucinations. Misinterpretations. Yeah. Hysteria. Things. Yes. We don't know. Flying saucers. All the rage. Flying saucers. But what we didn't talk about was who might be piloting said flying saucers other than the Russians. True. So we started off the episode today with a real, honest to God, UFO sighting story provided by one of our listeners, Miss Callie Nutt. Thank you very much. I was like giving you an opportunity to take a bow, but you're not here. You can do that wherever you are, though. We're just a little round of applause. Yay. And so as she described it, as we described in last week's episode, these UFO encounters were kind of like that. You know, they'd see a light. They might see something flying in the air. And it was very confusing. And once you heard the idea of UFOs, it's like, that's it. Maybe it could be it. I mean, that's what the rancher in Roswell thought. Hey. I've got one of those. You know, it's amazing that I did not think everything in the sky when I was a kid was a UFO because we could see everything. And we lived on the flight path out from Barksdale and Shreveport, the major Air Force Base. And we would have 10 or 12 jets fly overhead. It never occurred to me to be like, aliens, cool. Well, did you know that over 3 million people have been abducted? By what? Aliens. Strangers? Aliens. Alien. Extraterrestrials. Aliens. Cosmonauts. <laughs> Where did you get that statistic? Uh, the Roper Pole. What? It's a pole. I know. I know what it is. We'll get to there. Okay. I'm so, suspicious of your statistics. You should be. Okay. So we've had the idea of the menace from space since the late 1800s or, or before, but it's really when it got into popular culture. Mm-hmm. You had H.G. Wells. Mm. And then Orson Welles did his thing. Yeah, he did. All over the radio. All over. And we talked about that in our Warring Worlds of Media episode. And as Arthur C. Clarke, the writer of 2001 Space Odyssey, said that the menace from space was virtually unknown before Welles, but has come all too common sense. 
I used to stay up late just to watch a show on Discovery Channel. Now, many people will say that abductions started in the late 60s. Will many people be wrong? That's not exactly true. Okay. If you want to be pedantic, it is. But there was definitely alien contact in the 50s along with the flying disc craze. Okay, so is that like... Roswell, because as we discussed, the aliens did not show up in Roswell so much later. That's government disinformation. I'm sorry. What are you talking about? So there was alien contact in the 50s. And this was very different than what you'd see later on. People would receive messages or talk to extraterrestrial beings that were highly spiritually evolved, morally superior, technologically advanced, benevolent beings... With this concern for humanity and need to help because we were just bent on nuclear destruction. So this is the kumbaya moment we're having after we've dropped two atomic bombs. And it kind of reminds me more of the the movie we talked about last week that came before Attack of the Flying Saucers. Right. The day the earth stood still. That is the one I mean. And you know, like this reminds me very much of spiritualism. You know, where you have, like, intelligent contact, meant to help, very invested in humanity, and then somewhere around about the exorcist, you start getting more malevolent hauntings. Well, and so it does kind of have some similar traits to that. Let's talk about one of the most famous 50s contactees, as they were called, George Adamaski. Now, in 1952, he collaborated with author Desmond Leslie on a book Flying saucers have landed. Had they? He says they did. Cool. Because he told a true story of a series of philosophical contacts with men from Venus, Mars, and Jupiter. Well, I can already disprove it. Why is that? Because men are from Mars and women are from Venus. Ah, I see what you did there. Now, these were, as described, friendly, helpful, even noble beings from outer space. They were just here to help us. So, he sounds fun. Oh, yeah. May I have a little more background information on him? Sure. Well, he fancied himself kind of a, a wise man. Mm. In 1926, he started teaching the philosophy of a mysterious group of cosmic wise men called the Royal Order of Tibet. Tibet. Yes. Was he Tibetan? No. Okay. <laughs> he was Polish, I think. Cool. So like Tibet, but not at all. By 1940, he had settled in Valley Center near Mount Palomar. In the United States? Yes. Okay. And he worked as a cook in a small cafe. Now, Mount Palomar was home to, at the time, the world's largest telescope. Mm. It was championed by George Hale. Oh, of Hale-Bop fame? Uh, and X-Files fame. Oh, fine. <laughs> it's a pseudonym Mulder uses. Oh. Because George Hale saw a little elfin man that helped him, supposedly. That's the story. Cool. Elf, huh? Yeah. Cool. But Adam Askey was a amateur astronomer, had his own telescope, and would frequently be looking up at the stars. During a meteor shower in October of 1946, he said he had his first sighting of a spaceship, an object similar in shape to a gigantic dirigible. Is he sure it wasn't a dirigible? Who knows? Okay. Sorry, I shouldn't question this man. He's very wise. I forgot. You forgot. Tibet. Wise order of, of ancient Tibetan something. Now, he kept close tabs on the flying saucer craze and felt like 
they may land in a less populated area. So he and several other people went out on November 20th of 1952 to Desert Center in California. They spent the day exploring until about noon when they sat down to have a picnic. And at this time, a plane passed low over their heads, drawing their attention to a gigantic cigar-shaped silvery ship without wings or appendages of any kind that was hovering nearby. Mm, very mysterious. Now, Adamaski conveniently wanders away from the group. Mm-hmm. And just then, a small saucer-shaped craft appeared and settled into a cove about a half a mile from Adamaski. Then he suddenly noticed a man standing at the entrance of a ravine about a quarter of a mile away. Upon approach, he realized this being was from another world. How could he tell? That's a great question. Because he was about 5'6", about 135 pounds. <laughs> he felt like he was, he described him as suntanned, had large grayish green eyes that were slightly slanted, and he wore a chocolate brown jumpsuit type garment. So, to me, this guy sounds a lot like George Hamilton. Oh, maybe so. From The Godfather, part three. Let me give you more of his description. The flesh of his hand to the touch of mine was like a baby's. His hands were slender with long, tapering fingers like the beautiful hands of a woman. Mm -hmm. His hair was sandy in color and hung in beautiful waves to his shoulders, glistening more beautifully than any woman's I have ever seen. And I remember a passing thought. Of how Earth women would enjoy having such beautiful hair as this man had. Is this about aliens? Or is it about, like, a sexual awakening? <laughs> One and the same. Okay. Reminds me so much of, like, that description of Wild Bill Hickok. Oh, the sexy description. Yeah, like, it's so, that, oh, he had hair prettier than any woman's. And he was just like, mm. Disturbing. I know. <laughs> but it kind of reminds me of that. Now, Adam Askey communicated through hand signals and telepathy. The alien said that he was part of a friendly group from Venus who had come to Earth out of concern for our recent nuclear testing. And he warned that we were in danger of destroying ourselves and surrounding planets. That's a really powerful nuke. Yeah. And the craft left, and Adam Askey took plaster casts of the footprints and received affidavits from the others present who swore to have seen the being and his craft from afar. So case closed had to have actually happened. Well, he wrote another book mm-hmm. inside the spaceships. He got to go inside the spaceships? Yes. In 1952, he finally gave our, our sexy alien friend a name, Orthon. That's a great name. He also met a Martian named Fircon and a Saturnian named Remu. Uh-huh. And of course, they all resembled Earthlings. Oh. By this time, though... They were speaking perfect English. I mean, they are more highly evolved, clearly, if they can do space travel stuff in the 50s. So it stands to reason they'd learn languages relatively quickly. Yeah. Sure. Well, they, they'd been living on Earth and passing as humans. Why? They even why? had jobs. Why would, you, why would you ever? They wanted to, like, integrate, I guess. I don't know. That's assimilation. Whatever. They went to go in to Ford's school for, to learn English, Henry Ford's school to learn English. What was their native garb like? Brown jumpsuit. Oh, sorry. Pay attention. Sorry. <laughs> but an important point that he brings up is that they did return to their home planets, but only during work holidays. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Columbus Day weekend. I can go home to Venus at last. And he was taken to the giant mothership where he met two gorgeous space women, Kalna and Ilmuth. 
And did they have pretty hair too? I'm sure they did. Uh, l- luxurious, lustrous hair. Met a thousand year old Venusian wise man who told him that man could take his rightful place in the cosmos if he could only learn to love his brother. Now he yeah, kept, we're never going to get our place in the cosmos. <laughs> he kept publishing and they, things kept just getting a little, a little more interesting. He said that Jesus was actually an alien incarnated on Earth to help humans learn to be peaceful and loving. And the biblical fallen angels were actually the universe's criminals and troublemakers, which the aliens had banished to Earth. Well, no wonder we're having such a hard time taking our place in the universe. So basically what you're saying is that if you change Superman to Jesus, which let's argue, we could do a whole episode on that. It's basically the plot for the Superman canon. Especially like Man of Steel, like the new movie. Yeah. Okay. Cool. If we get to some dying planet stuff, we're really going to be able to knock this one out of the park. Well, he said ours was dying. Our planet's dying? <laughs> we were going to kill it. Oh, we were going to ki- We were murdering the planet. It's different. So what is this, this starting to sound like? A fever dream? Okay, so he is like definitely leaning back on some of his old ways where he was a wise man in a sacred pursuit of knowledge he's definitely beginning to maybe show some signs of religioning he He and l ron hubbard are gonna hang out he was starting a religion he was starting a ufo religion cool and we can't talk about ufo religions today no let's give a brief brief idea of it okay so ufo religions have their roots in the theosophical tradition okay so theosophy was brought back to light at the end of the 19th century along with so many other spiritualist kind of cockamamie new age old new age ideas old new new age old new new age and Blavatsky Madame Elena Blavatsky was kind of the prophetess call her madam (laughs) madam and she sort of just combined all the religions she just sort of took some a little bit of Eastern, like she pulled from Hinduism and Buddhism and also brought in the Western esoteric traditions and just sort of just made an ugly baby mashup. I'm actually going to go into theosophy in a few episodes. We promise. Just You just buckle up. And it is, in a way, what evolved into what would be considered new age ideas yes. now. But let's save that for a few episodes and UFO religions for a whole other episode sometime in the distant future. Because we're in serious danger of being flagged by the NSA for all the research we've been doing. But what's interesting is how he described the aliens. Mm-hmm. Basically people. Basically people. But some people point out that while they're now called Nordic aliens. Oh, God. Because this description became like a type of alien. Right. Because they're out there. So you have a wide array of aliens in the taxonomy. You have reptilians and these dudes, Nordic aliens. Nordic aliens. Are they also Venusians? Is that like their other pen? No, no, not now. Not now. (laughs) Not now anymore. No. So hard to keep track, but these are people looking aliens. Yes. But it's also interesting because they're described as Nordic but if you look at the background he's pulling from, they are true Aryan description. Uh, like, not just, like, Nazi Aryan, not just, like, tall, white, blonde dude. Like, true Aryan, like, mixture of the Tibetan ideas mm. and the tall, white, blonde dude. Cool. But most ufologists nowadays don't really take this pseudo-religious contact he reports seriously anymore. 
They get kicked out of the UFO community. Far too silly. It's too silly. Congratulations, you've done it. Now, when we get to kind of our modern, modern abduction type, we'll have to go to New Hampshire. Why? Well, let me read you a historical marker. I love historical markers. We talked about one for the Aurora alien last week. Yes. In Aurora, Texas. So let's talk about a New Hampshire historical marker. Betty and Barney Hill incident. On the night of September 19th through 20th, 1961, Portsmouth, New Hampshire couple Betty and Barney Hill experienced a close encounter with an unidentified flying object and two hours of lost time while driving. They filed an official Air Force Project Blue Book report of a brightly lit cigar-shaped craft the next day but were not public with their story until it was leaked in the Boston Traveler in 1965. This was the first widely reported UFO abduction report in the United States. So what I love about the Betty and Barney Hill historical marker is that it's situated in the middle of New Hampshire, and the gas stations and things around there have totally embraced it. Of course. So you can go in and get your like ha- homemade jam, because that apparently is what you do when you retire in New Hampshire, is make jam, according to every soap opera on television. I'll take some jam. And you can also pick up your little UFO tchotchkes. And there's like a little gas station that has like a full mural on the side of it. Hell and yes. like all of it. But they've embraced it. So Betty and Barney Hill, this is kind of... This is one of those stories. It's like Roswell. It, it has the it has, the import has. of Roswell in ufology. Ufology. <laughs> I don't know. So things kind of get kicking with the story, if you will. When Mr. Donald Kehoe, Major Donald Kehoe. Major. I know him. You do know him. We talked about him last week. Remind us who he is. Oh, he, his book was the inspiration for Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Exactly. But also he formed NICAP, which is one of the first kind of UFO groups that tried to study UFOs with some degree of science. And so he's showing up again. He's a recurring character now. So Betty Hill writes to Donald Kehoe on September the 25th to ask him if he'd published any other books since his last one. Because she wanted some more up-to-date information. And also she had this this thing she wanted to tell him about. So I'll, I'll let Betty do the talking now and we'll read her letter. Are you going to channel her? Um, You know I am. Dear Mr. Kehoe, the purpose of this letter is twofold. We wish to inquire if you have written any more books about unidentified flying objects since The Flying Saucer Conspiracy was published. If so, it would certainly be appreciated if you would send us the name of the publisher, as we have been unsuccessful in finding any information more up to date than this book. A stamped, self-addressed envelope is being included for your convenience. Wasn't she polite? Well, her husband was a postal worker. My husband and I have become immensely interested in this topic, as we recently had quite a frightening experience, which does seem to differ from others of which we are aware. About midnight on September 20th, we were driving in the National Forest area in the White Mountains, New Hampshire. This is a desolate, uninhabited area. At first, we noticed a bright object in the sky, which seemed to be moving rapidly. We stopped our car and got out to observe it more closely with our binoculars. Suddenly, it appeared to be flying, a very erratic pattern. As we continued driving, then stopping to watch it, we observed the following flight pattern. It was spinning, and it appeared to be lighted only on one side, which gave it a twinkling effect. As it approached our car, we stopped again as it hovered in the air in front of us. It appeared to be pancake in shape, with windows in the front, 
through which we could see a bright blue-white light. Suddenly, two red lights appeared on each side. By this time, my husband was standing in the road watching it. He saw wings protrude on each side, and the red lights were on the wingtips. As it glided closer, he was able to see inside the object, what? but not too closely. He did see many figures scurrying about, <gasps> though they were making some hurry type of preparation. I wonder if they were like drinking and having fun, like in the mystery <laughs> airship in Sacramento. No, they were working. They were definitely working. Definitely. One figure was observing from the windows. From the distance this was seen, the figures appeared to be about the size of a pencil and seemed to be dressed in some type of shiny black uniform. At this point, my husband became shocked and got back in the car in a hysterical condition, laughing and repeating that we were, they were going to capture us. He started driving the car. The motor had been left running. As we started to move, we heard several buzzing and beeping sounds which seemed to be striking the trunk of our car. We did not observe the object leaving, but we did not see it again. Although about 30 miles further south, we were again bombarded by the same beeping sounds. The next day, we made a report to the Air Force officer, who seemed very interested in the wings and red lights. We did not report my husband's observation of the interior, as it seems too fantastic to be true. At this time, we are searching for any clues that might be helpful to my husband in recalling whatever it was he saw that caused him to panic. His mind is completely blacked out at that point. Every attempt to recall leaves him frightened. We are considering the possibility of a competent psychiatrist who uses hypnotism. This flying object was at least as large as a four-motor plane. Its flight was noiseless, and the lighting from the interior did not reflect on the ground. There does not appear to be any damage to our car from the beeping sounds. We have both been quite frightened by this experience, but fascinated. We feel a compelling urge to return to the spot where this occurred in the hope that we may again come into contact with the object. We realize this possibility is slight, and we should, however, have more recent information regarding developments in the last six years. Any suggested readings would be greatly appreciated. Your book has been a great help to us, a reassurance that we are not the only ones to have undergone an interesting and informative experience. Yours truly, Mrs. Barney Hill. Well, that's a very interesting story, because it is not common for people to see beings Pilots. something in the craft right they saw them at a distance they're about the size of a pencil wearing shiny black uniforms couple of points to note before we go any further with the story yes this letter is mailed on the 26th of september so five days after the incident yes and also she's already read all the available books she can get her she hands on gone to the library yes betty has been to the library i mean this is a Really interesting incident, but she's still only talking about a UFO. Right. Okay. And it's going to stay that way for a bit. Yeah. And But she also says that the day after the event, they reported to the Air Force. They did. So that's where on the marker it said that Project Blue Book investigated. They did. This is the U.S. Air Force account of their report. So Mulder and Scully went out. Mm-hmm. Yes. This is what they found. The Barney Hill sighting was investigated by officials from Peace Air Force Base. It carried insufficient data in the Air Force files. No direction was reported, and there were inconsistencies in the report. The sighting occurred about midnight, and the object was observed for at least an hour. No specific details on maneuverability were given. The planet Jupiter was in the southwest at about 20 degrees elevation and would have set at the approximate time that the object disappeared. Without positional data, the case could not be evaluated as Jupiter. There was a strong inversion in the area, and the actual light source is not known, as no lateral or vertical movement was noted. 
the object was in all probability Jupiter. No evidence was presented to indicate that the object was due to anything other than natural causes. So a few things in there. So the sighting began around midnight and lasted about an hour. Mm-hmm. That'll change. Yes. Keep your eye on that one. Yes. And that they didn't provide any movement data. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, they don't talk about the aliens in the craft. Right. But they said they didn't report that to the Air Force from the get. Okay. And so the Air Force is like, no, leave us alone. <laughs> right. And they do report the buzzing to the Air Force right. and they note it. And they report more incidents of buzzing to them than they are eventually able to recall. In a later conversation with Barney, the investigating officer said during a later conversation with Mr. Hill, he volunteered the observation that he did not originally intend to report the incident. But inasmuch as he and his wife did in fact see this occurrence, he decided to report it. He says that on looking back, he feels the whole thing is incredible and he feels it's somewhat foolish. He just cannot believe that such a thing could or did happen. He says, on the other hand, they both saw it, what they reported, and and this fact gives it some degree of reality. So Air Force is like, okay, it's a super secret spy something. I mean, Jupiter. Same thing. I mean, that's a UFO. I mean, but in a roundabout way, after the Air Force kind of closes the case, Donald Kehoe starts the case. Because, Mm -hmm. like I said, he's the founder of NICAP. He sent the letter on to one of his investigators. You know, and Project Blue Book comes out, and the Hill incident is in there, but it's and it's one of the unresolved or unsolved unresolved. ones because of insufficient data. But Donald Kehoe is like insufficient, my ass. But he actually was skeptical of it from the get go. Yeah, like he said in his last book, "What caused the subconscious minds of these two people to create these pictures from their imaginations has never been fully explained." So he sends the letter off to his NICAP investigator, and he's going to go do some investigating, some sleuthing. So the letter is forwarded to Walter N. Webb, who is a NICAP researcher. He lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he's an astronomer affiliated with the Hayden Planetarium at Boston's Museum of Science. So he's got some serious credentials. He does. they, They were trying to take a really scientific approach to things in the beginning. So Walter Webb received a letter on October 19, 1961 from Richard Hall of NICAP, and enclosed was the letter from Betty to Donald Kehoe. He reports that it detailed a close-up observation of a UFO and its occupants. An interview with witnesses was suggested. Unfortunately, the possibility always exists that someone is seeking publicity or perpetrating a hoax or suffering from a mental aberration. He notes. So he makes this one-hour drive or two-hour drive to Portsmouth, New Hampshire on October 21st. So it's a pretty quick turnaround. He gets word on the 19th, and he's down there on the 21st. Yeah, quick. And there he conducts a six-hour interview with Betty and Barney Hill. Now, according to NICAP's report, on the night of September 19th through 20th, they were returning home on US-3 after a vacation at Niagara Falls with their dog, Delcy. A lovable fat dachshund. She's a fat little dachshund. I love her. And she was riding in the backseat of the car. Now, they left a restaurant at Colebrook, New Hampshire, around 10 p.m. They both noted the time on the clock. And then about 30 miles down the road, the sighting began in Groveton, New Hampshire. There was a bright star-like object in the southwest of the sky that was clear and brightly illuminated. And he notes that the moon was three-quarters full, so the visibility would have been good. And the object moved from below the moon and a big star, which Webb believes had to be Jupiter. So the big star. Right, not the object. Upwards, the west and north. Betty noted that the object was brighter than the star. 
They continued along the road, never going over 30 miles an hour. Mrs. Hill became quite excited about the object, so her husband stopped the car several times so that she could observe the thing through their binoculars. Barney said it was probably just an airliner, but suddenly it began curving around toward the west and then finally traveled eastward in their direction. They noticed no other cars on the road or people around. The region was very sparsely inhabited. Barney eventually pulled over and took his 32 caliber pistol out from the trunk and put it under the driver's seat. So he was worried. He was There was some uneasy. Yeah. Yes. So the object seemed to be following them. Betty described the object as staying back into their left and moving in a step-like fashion, tilting vertically, leveling off, tilting upward again, leveling off, etc. And all the time it seemed to be spinning. It looked to her through the binoculars like a flattened disc with a band of light spanning the convex edge of one side. They drove through Franconia Notch in the White Mountains and the UFO passed behind Cannon Mountain. As they passed out of the mountains near Indian Head, it was still present and seemed to be coming closer. The UFO came down in a clearing to the right, pulled around in front of the car, and stopped midair to the right of the highway. At this time, they estimated it was about 80 to 100 feet in the air. That's like right on top of Mm -hmm. them. And it stopped spinning, and the lighted side faced them. Barney stopped in the highway and put the car in park, engine on, and lights on. This is about 2.3 miles north of Woodstock. He used his binoculars in the car but couldn't see well, so he opened his door and leaned out of the vehicle, putting his pistol in his pocket. I was wondering why he grabbed the binoculars and not the gun. (laughs) The UFO then passed in front of the car again, seemingly only 100 feet from the car, and stopped in the field on the left of the highway. At this time, Barney thought he could it could be a helicopter, but was puzzled because it was virtually silent. Barney began to walk across the road to the field, stopping every few minutes to look through his binoculars. The object descended toward him, and he said he noticed 8 to 11 figures looking through the band, which was essentially a windshield. And the figures began a frantic burst of activity, direct quote. They scurried about with their backs turned and acted as if they were pulling levers on the wall. However, one remained at the window, and Barney referred to this one as the leader. He was, like, pointing at him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, menacingly. And there were red lights on each side of the windshield, and they began moving out and away from the ship, revealing two fin-like side structures. Betty remained in the car, trying to see what Barney was doing. She was watching in case a car came since they were parked in the middle of the road. She said she overheard him repeating, I don't believe it, this is ridiculous. And eventually Betty shouted, Barney, come back here, you damned fool. I guess what you would tell me. Get Actually, your ass back in the car. Bullshit. I would be the one out, yeah, I would be the one out in the field. Like, get your ass in this car. You're in the middle of the road. And there's fat docks and we'll be going, boof, boof. <laughs> According to Barney, the figures were humanoid. They were dressed in shiny black uniforms and black caps that seemed to be made of leather. He states that one figure turned to look over his shoulder and smiled. Barney continued to move forward until the UFO filled the visual field on the binoculars. So it's getting close. He estimates that he was 75 to 100 feet away from it. Mr. Hill believed he was going to be captured like a bug in a net when he knew that it was no conventional aircraft he was observing, but something alien and unearthly, containing beings of a superior type, beings that were somehow not human. It's very dramatic. I know. And he's, he even outlines in his like declarative introduction, like, doing my best not to sensationalize this, <laughs> but like, how can you not, right? Webb continues, In his conversations with me and his wife in 1961, Mr. Hill showed evidence of a mental block when he discussed everything from seeing the leader at the window until he got back in the car. Both witnesses had trouble recalling their drive home, but they noticed a strange beeping sound that seemed to be coming from the car's trunk. They also vaguely recalled turning off US-3 and seeing trees silhouetted against something orange that they took to be the setting moon. 
Okay, so they've seen the UFO. Mm -hmm. They have tons of flying saucer sightings. And this is pretty close. But there are other stories like this where they get pretty close. And then they go home? I thought we were talking about alien abductions here. Said something about a net. Did a big net come down? And I wish them? there were a net. There, were, there is no net. We are not talking about one story, Antonio Vesboas, which is like one that some people claim is one of the first alien abduction stories because it's so ridiculous. And Judgy much? Well, the aliens use like a rope ladder. <laughs> <laughs> Once I read that, I was like, no. <laughs> Betty thinks she remembers more. So she's not got that mental block that Barney's got. No, because she's been having magical remembering dreams. Okay. So she's been having dreams. And Webb reports, The dream so impressed Mrs. Hill that she wrote a five-page account of what she believed represented recall of an actual experience following the UFO encounter. At this time, I attributed the blackout period and the dreams to all the excitement and shock of the first encounter and nothing else. The orange object I dismissed as the setting moon, since the time was approximately right for moonset and the atmospheric refraction could cause reddening of the disks. Webb notes that the experience matched several, especially the one from Brazil, That's with, what the I was net, talking with about. the net. That's what I was talking about. And notes a high rate of abduction stories coming out of South America at this time. Yes. He also notes that no kidnapping story could ever be completely substantiated. Wait. Do you have the dream journal? I have the dream journal. Praise be and hallelujah. Praise be the, the Venusians. So these dreams occurred in late September of 1961. Hill explained them to Webb in October of 1961, believing that they represented true recall. She later compiled this account to memorialize the experience because she was so sure that these represented actual memories. But Webb was pretty skeptical of this, though. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He was like, you just got excited. So the account claims that these were written down in November of 1961. So after Webb's been there to investigate, she finally goes and sits down and writes up her dreams. Okay. So this is not a week after the incident where she's waking up. This is like kind of months later. She's mm. been talking to the Air Force, writing letters to Kehoe, talking to NICAP. She's like, I better write this down. Right. Dreams that occurred following the sighting of a UFO in the White Mountains on September 19th through 20th, 1961. Two events happened of which we are consciously aware. They were also incorporated in my dreams. First, we sighted a huge object, glowing with bright orange light, which appeared to be sitting on the ground. In front of this, we could distinguish the silhouette of evergreen trees. Our reaction was to say, no, not again. And then we consoled ourselves with the self-assurance that it was the setting moon. At this point, the highway made a very sharp turn to the left. Second, at the termination of this, I asked Barney if he believed in flying saucers now. He replied, do not be ridiculous. At this point, we were beeped again, so we vowed we would not say another thing about this topic, and we would forget about it all, at least this time. This time? I don't know. I will attempt to tell my dreams in chronological order, although they were not dreamed in all this way. In fact, the first dream told was the last one dream. My emotional feelings during this part were of terror, greater than I ever believed possible. We were driving home from the siding, and we saw the bright orange glowing shape. We made a very sharp left-hand turn and found that the road curved back to the right. At this moment, I saw eight to eleven men standing in the middle of the road. Barney slowed down to wait for them to move, but the motor died. He was trying to start the motor when the men surrounded the car. We sat there motionless and speechless. I was terrified. At the same time, they opened the car doors on each side and reached in and took us by the arm. 
This is the first dream I had. I am struggling to wake up at the bottom of a deep well and I must get out. Everything is black. I am fighting to become conscious. I am dazed and I have a far away feeling. Then I win the battle and my eyes open. I am amazed. I am walking through a path in the woods, tall trees on both sides, and next to me, on both sides, is a man. Two men in front and two in back, and then Barney, with a man on each side of him, other men in back of him. I became frightened again, and I turned to Barney, and I say his name, but he is sleepwalking. He does not hear me, and is not conscious of what is happening. The man on my left speaks to me, and asks me if his name is Barney. I refuse to answer. Then he attempts to reassure me that there is nothing to fear. Barney is all right, and no harm will come to us. After reassuring me that there was no cause for fear, the leader ignored me as we continued to walk. I would turn back to Barney, and he was still not aware of what was happening. Incidentally, he remained in this state until we returned to the car at the end. We reached a small clearing in the woods. In front of us was a disc, almost as wide as my house is long. It was darkened, and it appeared to be metallic. No lights or windows were seen. I had the impression that we were approaching it from the back. The leader spoke, firmly but gently, reassuring me that I had no reason to be afraid. But the more delay I caused by my uncooperativeness, the longer I would be away from the car. I shrugged my shoulders and agreed that we might as well get it over with. I seemed to have no choice in the situation. We entered the disc, and I found a corridor, curving to the contours of the ship. We started to enter the first room, leading from the corridor, but then I found Barney was being taken further down the hall. I objected to this and questioned why we could not be examined in the same room. The leader showed some exasperation with this question and my objections and explained, as if I was a small child, that the exam would take twice as long this way, and they only had equipment enough to test one person at a time in a room, and he thought that I wanted to be on my way as quickly as possible, so I agreed. It's very polite aliens. Very paternal aliens as well. Like About four or five men entered the room with us. But when another man came in, they left. This man was the examiner. He also spoke English. He was very pleasant and reassuring. He asked questions. Some I had difficulty understanding, as his English was not as good as the first man's. My answers puzzled him at times. He asked my age and also Barney's, and he shook his head as if he doubted me. He thought I looked too young. He asked me what we ate, and I told him. He did ask questions... What did vegetables look like? Which was my favorite one? Squash. What did it look like? How do we eat it? I told him about peeling it, cooking it, mashing it, putting salt, pepper, and butter on it. And he was puzzled. I tried to explain the color of it and looked around for something yellow, but I couldn't find any. I tried to tell him about meat and milk, but he did not understand the meaning of the words I was using. Then the examiner said that he wished to do some tests and find out the basic differences between him and and us, that I would not be harmed in any way, and I would not experience any pain. Also, he would explain what he was doing as we went along. First, I sat on a stool, and the doctor in front of me, with a bright light shining on me. My hair was closely examined, and he removed a few strands, and a larger piece on the left-hand side. I was not able to see what he used for cutting purposes. Then, he looked through my mouth and down my throat and my ears, removing some of the wax or something. And then he examined my hands and fingernails, taking a piece of my nail. And then they removed my shoes and looked at my feet and showed much interest in my skin. They pulled out some type of apparatus, which they held close to my arm on the top and inside. He took a slender, long instrument, similar to a letter opener, and scraped it along my arm. As he took these samples, he would hand them to the leader who carefully placed on clear material like glass or plastic and then covered it with another piece of wrap, and then put them in a piece of cloth, very similar to a glass slide. Next, he pulled a machine over and asked me to lie down on the examining table. This machine resembled the wires on an EEG, but no tracing machine was seen. On the end of each wire was a needle. 
He explained that he wanted to check my nervous system. He reassured me that I would feel no pain. Very gently, he touched the ends of the needles to different parts of my body. He started with my head, temples, face, neck, behind my ears, back of my neck, all my spine, under my arms, around my hips, and paid particular attention to my legs and feet. I felt that a recorder was being used, although I didn't see one. Also during this exam, my dress was removed, as it was hindering the testing. They said the next test was a pregnancy test. The examiner picked up a very long needle, about four to six inches long, and I asked what he planned to do with it, and he said it was a simple test with no pain and it would be very helpful to them. I asked what kind of pregnancy test he planned with that needle. He did not reply, but started to insert the needle in my navel with a sudden thrust. Suddenly, I was filled with great pain, twisting and moaning. Both men looked startled, and the leader bent over and waved his hand in front of my eyes, and immediately the pain was completely gone, and I relaxed. At that moment, I became very grateful and appreciative to the leader and lost all fear of him. It felt as though he was a friend. I kept repeating my thank yous to him for stopping the pain, and he said that they did not know I would suffer pain from this test, and if they'd known, they wouldn't have done it, and I could feel his concern about this, and I began to trust him. They decided to end the testing. I spent my time talking to the leader and walking around the small room. There was an absence of color in the room. It was like a metal construction with stainless steel and aluminum. There was a bright overhead light with a bluish shade. I mentioned this had been quite an experience and never had anything like this happen before. And he smiled and agreed and said, of course, in the beginning, I had been badly frightened and they regretted that they had frightened me and wanted to do all they could to alleviate it. I admitted I had completely recovered and was now just enjoying this opportunity to talk with him. Oh, how fun. And there were so many questions I wanted to ask and he volunteered to answer all that he could. At this point, some men came hurriedly into the room. Their excitement was apparent. I was worried that something had gone wrong with Barney's testing. The leader was gone only a brief period of time and he came back and opened my mouth, touching my teeth, trying to move them. They stopped, were very puzzled and he said... They were confused because Barney's teeth were removable and mine were not. This was an amazing discovery. The examiner returned and checked my teeth. I was laughing most heartily about this and went on to explain that Barney had dentures and the reasons for this, I would need them as I became older, that all people lose their teeth with old age. Oh God, that's horrifying. All were very amazed. All the men were going back and forth between Barney and me looking at our teeth to see the differences. I broached the subject again with the whole experience being so unbelievable to me that no one would ever believe me, that they would think I'd lost my mind, and I suggested what I needed was absolute proof this had happened. That's wonderful. Something I could take back with me. The leader agreed and asked me what I'd like. I looked around the room and found a large book and asked if I could take that with me. They let her take a book? He asked if I knew anything about the universe, and I said I didn't, and... He pulled down a map, which was strange to me. Now, I would believe this to be a sky map. It was a map of the heavens, and numerous sized stars and planets, some large, some only pinpoints. Between these lines were drawn broken lines, some light, some solid lines, some heavy black. They were not straight, but curved, and some went from one planet to another, and another a series of lines. Others had no lines. And he said that the lines were expeditions. He asked me where the Earth was on this map, and I admitted that I had no idea. And he became slightly sarcastic and said that if I didn't know where the Earth was, it was impossible for him to show me where he was from. He snapped the map back into place, and I said that I did not intend to anger him, but had told him that I knew nothing of such things. But there were many people here who did have knowledge of such things, and I knew that they would love to talk with him. 
and I knew that they would understand him. And then I suggested the possibility of arranging a meeting between him and these people. What a momentous meeting, quite a meeting, with scientists or top people in the world. And while I was saying these things, I was wondering if I could do this, but I felt it could be worked out some way. He asked why, and I said most people did not believe that he existed, and he would have a chance to meet them and study them openly. He smiled and said nothing. I was in the middle of trying to sell him this idea when several men appeared with Barney, who was still in a daze. Then a disagreement occurred, and they came and took the book. I protested, saying it was my only proof, and he said he knew that, and that was the reason they were taking it. He said that he could see no harm in my having it, but it had been decided that no one should know of this experience, and that I would not remember this. I became very angry and said, somehow, somewhere, I would remember, and that there was nothing he could do to make me forget that. He laughed and agreed that I might possibly do just that, remember, but he would do his best to prevent me from doing this. This has been the final decision. He added that I might remember, but no one would ever believe me, and that Barney would have no recollection of it. In any case, Barney might recall, which he seriously doubted. He would think things contrary to the way I knew them to be. Well, that's convenient. This would lead to confusion, doubt, and disagreement. So, if I should remember, it would be feasible to forget. It could be very upsetting. If you want me to forget, I will, and I will not talk. We left the ship and walked to the woods, This time, it seemed like a very short time. I spent the time saying that I would always remember and asking that they return. Please, 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 please return. The leader said that it was not his decision to make. He did not know if they would come back. And I said that I was very happy about meeting him and honored and thanked him for being kind. And all the men accompanied us. Once they're back at the car, they watch him take off. And she says, I patted Delcy and said, there they go. And we're none the worse for wear. We got in the car and Barney started driving. And he said nothing during this whole experience. So I turned to him and said, do you believe in flying saucers now? And he replied, don't be ridiculous. And then we heard the beeping of the car again. And I thought, good luck and goodbye. And I am going to forget you. If you want me to forget, I will. And I will not talk. Liar. Liar. (laughs) Next day. Excuse me, Air Force. I think some of the things that are really interesting in the dream are the tests. Yeah. Which, if it was a pregnancy test, they missed by about... Three or four inches. Well, later on, Betty would claim that it was an amnio. And she would have to be pregnant. (laughs) Right. I know. But she was like, see, the needle test came true. You have to be pregnant to have amniotic fluid. They weren't doing amniocentesis at this point. And so she was like, see, I saw the future with my aliens. There you go. I love how confused they are by vegetables. I think it's color as much as vegetables. They also have no concept of time. She talks about that. I did abbreviate some of this. She's quite that, the writer that is understandable because we measure time by how our earth moves around the sun and so they might have a completely different concept i love that the map is like a pull down map mm-hmm. like at school <laughs> why do you have a map in your exam room oh good question good question just interior decorating you know and then how she's like it was so much fun coming really- out again we could have tea and crumpets she really is like basically I just want to be friends, you guys. Like, she is, she is the person that would friend them on Facebook. And, of course, the ever-so-convenient, Barney is not going to remember this. And if he does, y'all stories are going to be completely different. Yeah, and she's like, he was in a dazed state. They told me he'd stay in a dazed state till we got back to the car. I know, it's very convenient. All right, so NICAP has come. The Air Force has come. They've written up their reports. She's like, I better write up these dreams I've been having. But this is all still self-contained. There's None of this is in the press, and the papers, anything like that yet. No. But she does mention in her letter to Kehoe that she's like, maybe we'll try hypnosis. So they, there is a quest for the right hypnotist, or 
a hypnotist. And it all starts when Barney begins seeking psychiatric help. He develops a drinking problem. Oh, no. In like February to March of 62. So the following early spring. And he does seek psychiatric help. He begins seeing a doctor named, I swear to God, Dr. Quirk. Of course. In March of 1962. Now, Dr. Quirk believed that they had experienced something. And he did rule out shared hallucinations. He says that shared hallucinations really only occur in extremely high-pressure situations or when death is imminent. And so he did not think that was a good fit for this experience. But he would not hypnotize them because he said if they had both chosen to repress the memory, it probably needed to stay repressed because it might be harmful to drag it out. And they had already attached such meaning to it that he was worried that it could be traumatic for them. Yeah, definitely. Now, Barty continued to get worse even after treatment. And he also developed wart-like growths in a circle around his genitals. Now, he did report that when he came home from seeing the flying saucer, for some reason, he went into the bathroom and inspected his genitals. Like, he just felt like this weird function to do it. When did he report that? When he was talking to Webb originally okay. in October. Okay, so earlier. But then he did have these wart-like growths on his genital area in a, like kind of a ring. Yeah, and he had, like, hypertension, too, at the time. Like, he was really stressed out. Well, he developed an ulcer. He developed hypertension. He continued to get worse. I think it's so interesting because he obviously is acting, like the psychologist said, like he had a traumatic event. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, people claim the warts are alien or whatever. They're probably genital warts. And genital warts, high blood pressure, all these kind of things all come about with stress. You know, stress can make those worse. There was a very interesting recent study done by McNally and Clancy where they took abduction victims. I guess you can call them victims, abductees. Yeah, Betty didn't feel like a victim. And they did measurement of their sweating, heart rate, and brain waves and had them kind of tell their story. Mm -hmm. Their findings were equivalent to people with PTSD. So they felt they had been traumatized. Like they were experiencing the same body cues yeah even if they were not like combat veterans or you know abuse survivors they had the same biometrics they had the same physical response as someone that did so whether they're abducted or not of course is up in the air but no matter no matter what they believe it well barney was manifesting all kinds of signs that something was going on stress he was stressed there were ptsd type of things going on so he decided to see another psychiatrist named duncan stevens who was at the exeter clinic in new hampshire and he agreed with quirk's earlier diagnosis that this was not a hallucination but he declined to put them under hypnosis for similar reasons to dr quirk late in 1963 Barney was getting worse, and he developed an ulcer. His high blood pressure continued to be an issue, and he'd been in therapy for months. And Betty was still very worried about those pesky dreams. She just could not sort them out. I would be, too, if I was having those dreams. They seem nice. She was terrified. At first. Yeah. (laughs) I also love how she's, like, going to try and distill which dream was which at the beginning, and then just, like, gives up. She's like, I don't know. This is the story, okay? But Stevens recommended that they meet with Dr. Benjamin Simon of Boston, Massachusetts, who was a specialist in hypnosis. And over the next seven months in 
1964, the Hills would drive to Boston for weekly sessions. Under hypnosis, Betty talked about the sightings and repeated the same narrative that she'd picked up on her, in her dream recall. And Barney repeated the sighting story and for the first time discussed his abduction experience. Interesting. Now, Barney was visibly shaken and while he was under hypnosis. He cried, he physically shook, he screamed and sobbed. And they were given copies of their tape recordings to listen to and review. And Barney found it very painful to hear them. Over the course of seven evenings, with the explicit permission of Betty and Barney Hill, Walter Webb was allowed to review the taped sessions in Simon's home. Okay, so our NICAP researcher is being very thorough. Mm-hmm. Now, he, at this time, kind of takes a step back and is like, really, let's look at the people and let's let's see what their makeup is. Like, what their... Who what the, are they? Who are they? Now that I'm having to spend so much time in their head... Let me find out a little hmm, more. A little background. So he noted that Barney had no prior interest in UFOs. Okay, what about Betty? Well, Betty shared, quote, a mild interest in the heavens with her father. The heavens? So, like, angels? No, like God. space. Space. Okay. Stars, et cetera. And her sister Janet had also previously seen UFOs. Oh, my gosh. Twice. <gasps> and he wrote up the following bio of Barney. He said he lives in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. He's 39 years old at the time of the encounter. He works as a hostel clerk in Boston, active in New Hampshire civil rights movement, belonged to the NAACP, and was on the board of directors for the Rockingham County Economic Opportunity Program. He was appointed to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, and he was also a member of the Toastmasters Club and frequently spoke at the local Rotary. It's important to know that he's black. Right. And very, very involved in civil rights movement. Like, if we didn't remember Barney Hill for being abducted by aliens, there's an actual chance that we would remember all the work he did for civil rights. Right? Like when I was reviewing newspaper articles about them in Portsmouth before the abduction, yeah. he is in the paper every week. He's active. he's testifying. Yeah. He's going to Washington. He is incredibly involved in the civil rights movement. Fantastic. It is fantastic. Dr. Simon also believed that that could have been the source of some of his stress. I agree. I agree. He was without a doubt stressed. Is not black. That is white. That is true. (laughs) And she shares a home with Barty. It is reported in her bio. And she was 41 at the time of encounter. She's a child welfare worker in Portsmouth. And she's a graduate of New Hampshire University. They're both members of the Unitarian Church and both had been previously married. Barney had two children. They had been married to one another about 20 months at the time of the sighting. So they're pretty newly wed yeah, as well. Definitely. I didn't realize that. So you have interracial couple, early 60s, newly married. He's a civil rights advocate. I can imagine the situation being stressful. Also, he works in Boston at night in the post office. Oh, okay. Okay. So, so it's not just in this little town. No, but he's commuting to Boston. He's working nights. You heard the phrase going postal comes to mind. That didn't exist yet. Didn't it? I don't think so. <laughs> One day. And then you have this other character who becomes very central to the story as the it's repeated. Yes. Benjamin Simon. And he specializes in treating PTSD. The name sounds familiar. Well, he was featured in the John Houston documentary, Let There Be Light. Which we talked about on another episode. Which we did. It's a great documentary. But he was a specialist in hypnosis and thought that it showed great promise with people who experienced high levels of trauma, such as combat veterans. Definitely. And that documentary was banned. 
right. by the U.S. Army. So he was involved in two things involving a government cover-up. That and the Betty and Barney Hill case. I'm just joking. I was like giving you this look like, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Could be. Could be. So he agrees to put them under hypnosis. Yes. They finally found someone. They went through several doctors. So Dr. Simon is going to try to treat this PTSD-like event, see what really happened, put them under hypnosis. Yeah. And so Barney begins to recall a mysterious, quote, mind voice. Hmm. So like a telepathy kind of thing. Okay. That is telling him to come closer to the UFO and gives him the command to turn off of US-3. Now, they do come to the cluster of men, as Betty described in her dream, and there is the glow in the woods. And the car does stop. Betty estimated that there were between 10 and 12 figures, and Barney noticed about six. Now, the strange hypnotic eyes were noted, and they seemed to command him through the mind voice to tell Barney to close his eyes and keep them shut. Some kind of telepathy. And then he is kind of saying, you know, kind of agreeing with what Betty said, that he's kind of kept in his stupor. Right. For some reason, just him, not her. Right. Well, she's much more interested, and they know that. I mean, she's, like, inviting them in for tea. She's chatty. Apparently, at this time, someone discovered the gun in his pocket. Oh. And they just take it from him and put it back in the car. Oh, well, that's nice of them. Betty describes the man coming up to the side of the car. She looks up at him and promptly falls asleep. The Hills both agree that the figures were about five feet tall, somewhat shorter than average height of human beings, or about as tall as Betty. Arnie was taller than they were. Their faces were Caucasian, but with gray skin, and their bodies were, according to Betty, thick-chested and slender-hipped. They wore navy dark uniforms, each figure wearing a short dark coat like a navy pea jacket. So that's different than what she described before? Well, Barney described it before. He yeah. said it was like a gimp suit. No. <laughs> he said it was shiny black like leather. A leather jacket kind of thing. Shiny black, though, like yes. vinyl, I guess. Mr. Hill had his eyes closed, and he felt himself going up on an incline or ramp beneath his dragging feet. As he went through the door, he stumbled over a sill which was raised above the floor, and he said he would trip over it again when he left the ship. So Betty gives basically the same account here as she does in her dreams. But there is this part where she says, Next, he unzipped her dress. Mrs. Hill removed the dress, leaving her clothes in a slip. She lay down on the table on her back while a machine was pulled over. And then she goes through all the testing. They have the pregnancy test again. Mrs. Hill declared that that needle was no pregnancy test. While the doctor attended Barney Hill, the leader put all the samples into the drawer and handed Mrs. Hill her shoes and dress. She put them on and he zipped up her dress for her. Oh, they're so polite. I know. These aliens. And then she repeats the bit about the, the squash. Sure, but squash <laughs> and the map. If you'd ask our children, squash or some terrible alien creature sent yes. to kill them. Yes, it's poison. They're poison. When my kid asks me what we're having for supper, I'm like, poison. Poison. <laughs> and I always say monkey brains. No, Dad, it's not monkey brains. And then I sing miles in, miles in. So Mrs. Hill told the leader that her knowledge was very limited, but there were other people who would know and would like to talk to him. She asked if he could please, please, please come back. And he says, it's not my decision to make. But if they chose to come back, they would find her. How would they find her? Asked Betty. We always do, answered the leader. And then she goes on to tell that they took the book, which is where she cries under hypnosis. Oh, okay. She goes on to the, she might remember, but no one would believe her. 
In any case, he said, Barney would not recall any of the experience, and if by chance he did, his story would be different, leading to confusion, doubt, and disagreement. He advised her to just forget everything, if she could, if she should remember, since it could be very upsetting. Okay, so I think that no matter what, that Betty's story fits with the dreams makes sense, because she has been talking about these dreams Mm -hmm. nonstop. Right. With anyone that'll listen. I'm pretty sure that's true. And sat down and and wrote it out. And looked at it. And referred back to it. Probably edited it. And, you know, that makes sense. That is completely embedded in her psyche. Yes. But she's always the first to point out that, you know, Barney's story might be different. Uh, They told me it was going to be different. So it's probably going to be different. Right. So is it different? Yeah, it's a little different. A little different? It's a little different. Oh, just a little different. <laughs> it's a lot of different. It's a, they're not as nice to Barney. Maybe the aliens are racist. Or sexist. Or both. Polite aliens, my ass. Polite, just to the white lady. So let's look at Barney Hill's account of his examination. Mr. Hill opened his eyes for a quick peek at his surroundings and saw that he was standing before a table in a clean, wedge-shaped operating room, which was illuminated with a pale blue light. He could see a cabinet of some kind in the room, and several men were standing there. He closed his eyes again. After he was placed on the table, his shoes were taken off and his pants pulled down slightly. He felt a cup-like device placed around his genitals, and believed a sperm specimen was somehow withdrawn. His left arm was scraped for skin cells, and his ears and throat were checked. He was rolled over on his stomach, and a cylindrical object was inserted up the rectum, and once again, the witness believed something was extracted. And thus, the anal probe alien story is born. Woohoo! Sorry for that, guys. (laughs) Yeah, they're much more violent with Barney than they are with Betty. Like, even though she gets her navel poked... Yeah, but then, like, he says they're mumbling, humming, you know, they're not chatty and saying sorry with him. And he thinks that they're communicating with him through telepathy. Mm -hmm. And Betty's remarking on which ones have accents. So very, very different story and much less detail than Betty's little novella she wrote. Right. Her fanfic. Alien fanfic. Can we call it fanfic or do we have to believe it's true for a little while longer? Let's believe it's true for a little while longer. Okay, let's go with that theory. So the story is reported to NICAP. They finished their report on September 11th of 1965. Then lo and behold. What? Aliens. Bo- yes. They come back. They announce themselves. They have tea at the White House. Wonderful. They're entertained by Mamie Eisenhower. I was going to say, who's president there? <laughs> is it LBJ? It may- it's LBJ. It's LBJ. Oh, he takes him down to Texas. Lady Bird entertains. Lady Bird. I would come to Earth to meet Lady Bird Johnson. <laughs> she was definitely the best of the two. Lady Bird's my spirit animal. So as we said on our historical marker, this really gets the public eye. It was written about before in select publications. The public eye. In 1965, when the Boston Traveler publishes their expose... Now, this is really thorough reporting. I'm very impressed. And it was a five-day series. It's also impossible to find on any alien UFO skeptic website. But I found it. Where? On genealogybank.com, because I do genealogy. Yay. Um, And we will post them on the website, because there's literally nowhere else you could find it. Ta-da! So, it was very thoroughly researched, as I said. And it's evident that he contacted the Pentagon... All right. Peace Air Force Base, friends and neighbors of the couple, 
as well as employers and clergy. He also spoke with Dr. Simon and contacted Walter Webb of NICAP. And of course, I mean, he interviewed the Hills. Well, no. What do you mean? No, no. Uh, He had the tapes. The tapes of the hypnosis? No. What? They gave a little talk. A little talk. To a UFO group in New Hampshire. Okay. And the tapes were, quote, made available to the traveler. Mm. This is the leak that is described. I am 50-50 on whether or not Betty did it. (laughs) (laughs) We'll never know. But this served as the basis for his reporting. Now, there are some nuggets in here that I thought we'd draw out that are a little different than the NICAP reporting. And these are quotes from their speech, their talk. Well, some of them are, and some of them are some of the interviews he conducted as supporting research. Okay. So this goes to the presses in October of 1965. They describe Barney and the Traveler as Hill, 43, is of medium height, medium weight, and average intelligence. He's emotionally mature and a regular churchgoer. He is held in high esteem by his neighbors and fellow workers. They describe Betty as a short and pleasant woman, professionally trained to weigh decisions carefully. Like her husband, Mrs. Hill's reputation for reliability is unblemished. George E. Murphy, the state director of public welfare in New Hampshire, was interviewed and says that Betty is a highly able and qualified social worker. Their spiritual advisor... Reverend John Stuart McPhee described them as good, wholesome people. He explained that the Hills had been chosen to be observers at the UN and had led UN Sunday services Mm. at their church. Their neighbors said they were friendly but never intrusive and that they lived modestly. So they're basically fine, upstanding citizens in the community. Yes. Kind of what he's saying. These are not crackpots. Right. They're not some nut jobs. These are just normal, good people. One discrepancy that's readily apparent when you read this account is he makes a lot of hay out of the fact that the Hills waited two whole days before reporting their sighting. We know this to be false. Right. The beeps feature very prominently in this account of the experience. Uh, The Hills describe a beeping noise that began when they noticed the object that seemed to come from their trunk. And the beeping noise recurred about 20 miles down the road, and it would continue to plague them throughout the night. Now, the author's skepticism of the government's knowledge of the event is also evident from the very first installment of this five-part series. He says, officially, the Air Force, the government's UFO investigatory agency, says this couldn't have happened. Although conceding that other persons reported sighting a UFO at the same time and place as the Hills. The Air Force says the UFO appeared on its radar as a shimmering, an air mass phenomenon that reflects light from the ground. But... Unofficially. <gasps> Unofficially. It is well known that what the Hills known? the Hills case is getting top priority attention. Top at, priority. At the Foreign Technology Division of the Air Force Command at Wright Patterson Field in Dayton, Ohio. That's where they took the UFO from Roswell. The word foreign means foreign to this earth, not simply alien to this country. Ba ba ba. This is a highly secret division directed by the CIA. And it takes over and investigates UFO reports. The Air Force itself cannot explain. So that's a little true. <laughs> it's a little true, but doesn't it sound very sensational oh, it's here? Fantastic. Part two offers details very similar to those found in the NICAP report with a few differences. Latrell continually reports that half a dozen other New Hampshire residents saw this object and then it appeared on Air Force radar. And then Betty describes things a little differently, too. She says, I leaned out the window, but I couldn't see anything. The strange vibrations started again, and Barney drove even faster. Pretty soon they stopped, and I remember saying, Now don't you believe in flying saucers? And he answered, Don't be silly. When we finally got home, we made a strange discovery. First, the trunk of our car was unlocked. 
but the lid was still down, and the lid itself was covered with shiny spots the size of a half dollar. Apparently, where we'd been beeped. Beeped? Like lasers? Whatever was making the car... And we know why the trunk was undone. Because he got the gun out. Exactly. Also, they report no damage to the car... Oh, right. Initially, but they do. It is mentioned in the NICAP report that there are some like shiny spots that fade over the course of the winter. Of course. And then Barney says that he was first concerned when he realized that it had taken them four hours to negotiate the two hour drive. This began to bother us. It was as if somewhere along the trip, I'd undergone a complete mental blackout. Now, back to the Air Force. They couldn't have known the true nature of this reporting, and they couldn't have known that Betty Hill was having these dreams. Because they didn't tell him? Yeah. <laughs> Betty was having terrifying dreams. Barney, too, had become affected by the dreams of his wife because she described them so vividly. Dreams that always pointed back to the night of September 19th. Fearful they were losing their minds, husband and wife sought psychiatric help. It was a decision that would result in a series of fantastic revelations buried deeply in their subconscious that may fully account for those missing two hours. Okay, so now added hour from the initial Air Force report, right? first of all. Part three. Betty's description of the aliens is very notably different than her later descriptions of the aliens. She said there was nothing grotesque about them, and they were pretty human-looking. They were just over five feet, and their chest and their noses were somewhat larger than ours. They seemed relaxed and not at all hostile. They bore every resemblance to human beings, and they all wore identical jackets and trousers. Their eyes and hair were dark, and they wore low slip-on shoes that resembled boots. They have hair. They do. They have big noses. Yes. They look human. And then she repeats the bit about squash. Always the squash. And I looked around the room for something to compare it with. And it was then I became aware that there was a complete absence of color. Huh. Similarly, she said the complexions of the beings themselves were bland and devoid of color. Their skin, she said, was bluish or grayish in tone and their lips bore a bluish tinge. The Hills also mentioned that the ship was well illuminated, but there were no visible lights. And that's when I says to myself, I says... Holy shit, it's a black and white TV set. Is like it? a set that you film on, not a TV set. But Or a TV set. So, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> Let's debunk some of this ridiculousness. We love the story. It's really creative, you guys. Good job, A+. So, you talked about how the descriptions of the aliens changed. Yes, right? very much. And once they go through this hypnosis, their stories kind of start to come together. Uh, initially, they have like black leather jackets. They look kind of like greasers. They have big noses, black hair, leather jackets. I think more like Nazis. Barney always says they look like Nazis. He does. Oh, that's so interesting. I imagine they go, hey, it's all right. They're the Fonz. You think the aliens are the Fonz? The I one with the accent, at least. That's the accent. Okay. It's Italian, Obviously. American, or whatever. <laughs> whatever the font is. I think I think he's Jewish. <laughs> Henry Winkler is, at least. <laughs> oh, no, he is. He is in the show, right? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I wish you I you think know. I know Fonzie's affili- religious affiliation? Hypnotize me so I can remember watching Happy Days when I was 10. We could just watch Happy Days. No. No. Sit on it and rotate So later the descriptions will shift from this and you'll see it over time, but they do become more like what we think of as aliens now, more like what's sold in the alien tchotchke gas stations. They have the the giant eyes that tilt upward, the little chins, uh, no mouth, basically no nose, no ears, you know. It changes. It changes, especially after these kind of like hypnosis sessions. You start to get this like really kind of codified 
idea and a lot like what we think of as like a gray alien as they're called the grays so interestingly enough nearly all of the imagery that barney hill uses and betty hill later co-ops right very closely parallels three episodes of the classic outer limit television series Ta-da! that aired the three weeks before their hypnosis session. Oh, no. So Hill started hypnosis in January of 1964, and he first describes the alien beings on February 22nd. Okay. The three episodes played on February 3rd, 10th, and 17th. Huh. And let me tell you about a few of them. The February 10th episode, The Bolero Shield, has a scientist, Martin Landau, Inventing a laser that pulls an extraterrestrial being down from the stars. Cool. This being has wraparound eyes. Oh, that's even the word they use. Yes. No ears, no hair, no nose, and a cranium shaped like a bullet tilted backwards 45 degrees. Fantastic. And that's that matches the description given under hypnosis. And one of the characters is talking with one of the aliens and asks if the alien can read her mind. It answers, no, I cannot read your mind. I cannot even understand your language. I analyze your eyes. In all the universes and all the unities, beyond all the universes, all who have eyes have eyes that speak. I learn each word just before I speak it. Your eyes teach me. Interesting. And Barney's, in his description of the the mind voice, he says that he feels most of the communication is done through the eyes right right and dr simon even notes their preoccupation with their with the eyes the eyes they keep bringing up the eyes barney you know draws the wraparound eyes and the shape of the head and he talks about this one time he says yes they, they won't talk to me only the eyes are talking to me I, I i don't understand that the eyes they don't have a body they're just they're just eyes and of course that's very different than how Betty describes them initially, like I say, kind of like greasers. Chatty, polite. Not frightening. Um, So in the February 17th episode, Children of Spider County, there is an abduction, disappearance, of four men born in the rural backwoods of Spider County by extraterrestrials from the planet Eros. Love? Yeah. Okay. So the leader has come to retrieve his half-human son, whom he had begotten of a human mother. The son doesn't want to leave because he has fallen in love with a human girl. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's a tense confrontation between the son and the aliens of Eros in the woods. So the monsters from the planet Eros, now they look, when they're like in disguise, or, you know, whatever you want to call it, like humans. Okay. They have suits on, maybe a little Nazi-ish. Oh. Hard to say. Not as, not as, you know. Blatant. Not as obvious, but they look like well-dressed people. But when they turn into their alien forms, they have these huge wraparound eyes that glow. Oh. And on the close-ups of the images, the eyes just glow and kind of take up the whole screen. February 3rd episode of The Outer Elements is called The Invisibles, where the invisible aliens perform surgical experiments on humans. And the humans are lying face down on the table. And they look like people, but then they, they're kind of parasitic-ish. And they take the alien crab thingy and put it on the man's back, where he inserts a large tail into his back. 
Oh, you're doing scare quotes. Yes. And you know, the image is like the guy, like, you know, face forward. The guy's like leaning over the table, like clenching. Oh, subtle. So there's a lot of imagery that's used in Barney Hill's description of the aliens that could very well come from this. So now people say, well, we don't know that they watched Outer Limits. And the thing is, they didn't have to watch The Outer Limits. All they had to do was see the commercials for The Outer Limits. Uh, okay. Because it's not like today where they hide the alien or they hide the twist ending. They were like straight up putting the alien in the like 30 second spot. called a ba- It was called a bear where they it was to draw people in. I also think that, you know, if they had seen it, the Spider County story, you know, could have really spoken to him. Right, like this society trying to tell you who you should be with based on where you're from and what you look like. Yeah, I can see why that would maybe hit home. And why did they not call that episode Star-Crossed Lovers? I mean, Waste. 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 If Rod Serling had written it. That's what it would be called. That's what it would be called. So just interesting, interesting points, you know, of, of maybe how he got some of these ideas. Barney, in this account or in this episode of the five-part series, does mention that the Air Force was very interested in his report because he mentioned that the lights on both wingtips of the craft were red. And not red-green. Which was the norm at the time. I can see that setting off little alarm bells for the Air Force because it's like, oh, no, no, we do put lights on our wingtips, but they don't look like that. Holy shit, what was it? And then also... In this account, the needle that's jabbed into Betty's belly button becomes a large wand. Okay. Just a notable... Interesting. ...change, and it's way more sexual. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Freud. Sorry. Sorry. Sometimes a wand is just an alien space probe. (laughs) Even when it's doing a pregnancy test? Just be glad they didn't do the other test. (laughs) So in part four, it is mentioned that Barney's memories are not accessible without the aid of hypnosis. And again, we have to hear this line. And I turned to Barney and said, now do you believe in flying saucers? And he replied, don't be ridiculous. And then we were beeped again and the lights disappeared and the object was gone. Betty sums up her account. But for Barney Hill, a 43-year-old worker at Portsmouth Post Office, there is still no conscious memory of what may have happened. But under hypnosis administered by Dr. Benjamin Simon of Boston, he said he remembers the experience he shared with his wife with only minor variations. Betty repeats the story about the book being taken and claims that they told her that she was not allowed to remember, but does not mention that Barney would have different memories now because she doesn't have to. Because now their stories all lined up. Right. So (laughs) his memories have come from hypnosis. Now, we're not going to go into how completely debunked memory recall from hypnosis memory recovery yeah whatever because it's false memory recovery and it's very easy to implant false memories under hypnosis and especially with someone that's been primed by their wife telling these stories all the time and someone that's very stressed it's very easy to see how these memories could become implanted and also one of the problems with recovered memory under hypnosis is it's very easy to lead a person mm-hmm. into coming up with memories. And so if you want more on that, go back to our second episode. Third? Second, second or third? Second, I think, episode on satanic panic. Because only 30 years ago, people were coming out of the woodworks with these satanic rituals that were going on. <gasps> UFO. <gasps> Bye, guys. Can you please come have tea? Can you hear their eyes? I see them. They waved. 
But they were using all of these recovered memories under hypnosis. And if all of them were to be believed, basically the country is run by Satanists. And Chuck Norris is definitely the grand poobah. Well, everybody knows that. So if you want more on that, go there. But I think it's pretty readily known that that memory recall under hypnosis has been 100%, 1,000% debunked as any kind of actual memory recovery device. Right. It should be noted that Betty Hill says she can now remember without psychiatric aid, but she said her husband still cannot remember consciously what happened between the time they saw the object and the time that they came back to the car. And after interviewing everyone involved, Luttrell ends, whether or not this occurred near Fraconia Notch on the night that the Hills were driving past, Webb cannot say, but the sight of a spaceship, he hints, may have frightened the couple so badly that the result was an intensely realistic impression on their subconscious that may never erase. Neither did the Hills claim that the disclosures under hypnosis actually occurred. And that final statement, it's hard to say where he's kind of getting that line from, because later on, without a doubt, they are saying it happened. Well, Betty especially. Barney's like, I don't know, man. He's always, he's always skeptical. And that's, that's good. And it kind of having two accounts to compare really helps us say, you know, this is just kind of ridiculous. <laughs> but also shows that they're not consistent. They're extremely mm-hmm. inconsistent. And their stories from the point where they're abducted completely don't line up like why do they treat him so poorly and her so well like that that is one of the things i have the hardest time wrapping my eyes around i mean wrapping my head around so in 1966 john fuller writes the book the interrupted journey and it becomes a sensation (laughs) especially among the true believers barney hill dies in 1969 in his open appears in the local paper. Barney Hill dies in city at age 46. A Portsmouth postman who maintained he and his wife were taken captive aboard a UFO while in the White Mountains, September 19th of 1961, died last night at the age of 46. Barney Hill, stricken at his home with a cerebral hemorrhage and died a short time later at Portsmouth Hospital. Mr. Hill and his wife, Betty, were the subject of the book The Interrupted Journey by John G. Fuller, relating... To their experiences, they revealed under hypnosis concerning a flight and a flying saucer. He and his wife made a number of national television appearances in which they related their experiences. A native of Newport News, Virginia, he was formerly the chairman of the board of directors for Rockingham County Community Action Program and a member of the State Advisory Board on the Economic Opportunity Program. He was appointed as a representative to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. Mr. Hill was a life member of the NAACP of New England and the New England Regional Board of that organization. And so after Barney dies, you really start to see Betty really lean into the story. You can see in a 1971 newspaper article where she is fully in. Betty and Barney both had recurring terror dreams about being kidnapped by extraterrestrials and taken aboard their spaceship. These dreams made Barney so anxious that he developed a stomach ulcer. He did not have dreams. Right. He did not have dreams. They had gray, metallic-looking skin, no noses. But their noses were slightly bigger than ours. Described as Jimmy Durant noses. Had to Google him. Has a big schnoz. Big schnoz. Their mouths were only slits. They seemed to communicate without words. Wait, now they don't have words, but they had accents. Apparently. By direct thought transference, Betty said, Golly. 
Since the amnesia was pierced by the hypnosis, said Betty Hill, there's no difference for me between my memory of being taken aboard the spaceship and physically examined and any other memories I have of past events. That memory is as real to me as anything that's ever happened. But I thought she remembered it before because she had the dream. Right, and they pretty much exactly line up with the dreams that she wrote. Huh. So this comes back to national attention again in 1974 when news breaks that the star map drawn by Betty under hypnosis. The map that was pulled down. Has like been a school cracked. Map. <gasps> it's been cracked. So Miss Fish, an amateur astronomer, as someone notes, a teacher with a telescope. Betty's map could only have been drawn after contact with extraterrestrials. She concluded, Miss Fish describes her study and findings of the UFO symposium here Saturday. Sponsored by the Mutual UFO Network Incorporated. MUFON! Yay! And she says that this star data wasn't known until 1969, so it couldn't have been a hoax. And that it's amazing because these would all support life, all of these planets she's found. It's funny because at the time they didn't have that many planets that they thought could support life. Now we know that there's hundreds, right? if not thousands. But back then they were like, there might be one other one. Carl Sagan was pitching the idea that there were more, but this is rebutted pretty thoroughly in Official UFO from August 1976. Now, what happened is Betty put out the star map that she recovered during hypnosis and said it looked just like the one, and it was basically a challenge accepted moment for amateur astronomers. But over the years, to this point in 1976, three different solutions had been put forward for her star map. Now, the first one was the constellation Pegasus, which Betty herself put forward in 1965 after she'd seen a picture of it run in the New York Times. Of a Pegasus? Of the constellation. Oh, boring. And it had, <laughs> boring. And it had a little satellite, a little Russian satellite. And she's like, that must be the beacon that led the UFO to Earth. And then she like took out her map and like labeled everything with stars from Pegasus. And that one just didn't hold up. No one was like believing it. But then in 1974, the fish map comes out. That's the one that says they're from Zeta Reticuli. Yeah, that's, and that sticks. And Stanton Friedman's on the case. Yay! Good news. He's back. He says he, that, You know, he's going to write a book about them. In the 90s. In the 90s. What the hell, Stanton? He was really late on that game. I feel like he lost some serious money by not writing earlier. I think he thought the lecture circuit was the way to go, and he was wrong. He says the chances that the fish map would grab 15 stars and come up with only habitable planets, or the right kind of planets, were, well, astronomical. Nice. Now, Schaefer, who is writing this, Robert Schaefer, debunking, notes that Friedman repeatedly claimed that all 15 stars on the map were identified. However, the original map showed 26 stars, and that means that half of them were not, around half of them, were not identified. And also, it, they fail to report that Miss Fish began her study using only habitable planets, only looking at those planets that could support life. Interesting. And so the idea that she came up with a solution where the planets could support life becomes far less impressive when you know that her sample did not count those. Now, there was another map called the Atterberg map, which was created by Mr. Charles Atterberg, another amateur astronomer. And he did not start with only habitable planets, and he identified 25 of the 26 stars. And seven of the 11 planets supposedly visited by the aliens, as indicated by the lines on the map, (gasps) were considered habitable. Hey, there we go. But 
the mere fact that there had been three solutions put forward that could fit and had been like declared matches showed that the map was not scientifically viable evidence in Schaefer's opinion. Okay. And he's, as an example, he says that Atterberg showed a friend of his the map. Yeah. And was like, do you know what this is? What do you say? He said, yeah. What? It's my neighborhood. <laughs> he says, that's my house. That's my neighbor's house. That's that big main road. That's the gas station. He labeled all the stars. Let me play ufologist for a second. One of the things I think is so funny about the star map is everyone's trying to find it as if it was positioned from the Earth. Is that true? I don't know. Well, how else would you know the constellations? They move. I don't know. I think the star map... <laughs> no, is- no, no, no. I mean, think about it. Like, seriously, think about it. Like, if it was an alien map, mm-hmm. let's just say it was, there's no reason to think it's from Earth's, Earth's perspective. So if you think of the universe as a big globe, which it's not, and the you go... expanding. I know. And you go 90 degrees in one direction, all of the stars are in different alignment. <laughs> so not only is it pointless, it's egocentric. It's egocentric, yeah. Of course. We're humans. Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing on this show? So 1975 was an interesting year in the saga of Betty and Barney Hill. Philip Class had decided that he was going to investigate, read, debunk the shit out of the Betty and Barney Hill story. He's a top-notch skeptic. Yes, and Robert Schaefer was along for the ride. And he began working, they began working together on the skeptical inquiry into the claims made by Betty Hill. And their correspondence with Dr. Simon, our hypnotist, and Betty over the year of 1975 is delectable. (laughs) Do you have a few choice statements? I do. So this is Simon's letter to Philip Class in 1975. Let it be known that I have never deviated from my conviction that a sighting took place. What was cited, I don't know nor did the Hills know. I'm sure that the abduction and examination did not take place as they did in Betty's dreams, and the evidence I have is very strong. This was not a newly acquired candor. And so he actually repeated that statement on the Today Show. With Betty. With Betty there. (laughs) And her head exploded. And that audio is in the Internet Archives. So... Betty writes to Philip Class in 1975, If you lived in this area, you'd be convinced that UFOs are extraterrestrial crafts. A researcher has investigated 350 landings, near landings, and close encounters in the last five years. None were lights in the sky. We are known as a hot spot, and at night we turn on our radios and pick up activities when the UFOs fly over and they scramble the F-11s to chase them. They're not a rarity, but they're seen frequently, clearly, and daylight sightings are increasing. Abductions are increasing in a frequency and length, and those abducted are being protected from the mass media, if we can do this successfully until they regain some of their strength. Letter from Philip Class to Betty Hill, November 18, 1975. I was most interested to learn in your letter that an investigator has recorded and investigated more than 350 landings, near landings, and close encounters in the last five years. Is he basically going to tell her to cite her sources? Oh, yeah. Wonderful. Could you give me the name and address of this investigator? I love it. You speak of your concern over the number of abductions that are taking place now. Have you written your senator or your congressman to express that concern? If so, what has been his reaction? (laughs) Letter from Betty Hill to Philip Glass. November 28th, 1975. Dr. Simon thinks I transferred my dreams to Barney, 
Much powers I have, all Dr. Simon's fantasies. In all our nine years of marriage, I was never able to transfer such a simple thought as him starting dinner or sweeping the floor. Mr. Shaver thinks I mistook Saturn for a UFO. I know nothing about astronomy. However, I know that planets do not fly around. They do not leave spots on the trunk of my car or ruin my dress or Barney's shoes or get picked up on radar or seen by witnesses and capture people. I do hope that Mr. Schaefer will take a course in astronomy. Mr. Schaefer's an astronomer. <laughs> nice. So there are some other components of the story that begin to come out. There's this claim that seven radars picked up the UFO that she makes on the Today Show. Do they? Well, none of the records were ever produced to verify that claim. One report did state that an unidentified target was observed on the precision approach radar four miles out. Precision approach radar is important here because it can pick up bugs and birds. Mm. And it's only for objects coming into the landing strip. Okay. So it's super sensitive. And it was determined at the time that the reading was taken that there was no physical object that corresponded to the signal that was picked up. And it was a momentary flash. Shaver also points out that the times of the hill sightings changed from between midnight and 1 to right after 11 to right after 3 a.m., as they tell the story over the years. They also report that the night was clear, but when reviewing weather data, it was obvious that the night was pretty cloudy. He also notes that Betty claimed that the Library of Congress had copies of their hypnosis tapes. Did they? No. Oh. That didn't check out. So in 1977, newspaper article, Kidnapped by UFO, Fact fiction the 16-year debate continues prostrate and helpless on a cold metal table betty hill writhed in pain as her captor inserted a long steel needle into her abdomen in a room bathed in eerie light miss hill was being given an extraordinary physical exam from crew members of a ufo her examiners had gray skin small slits for mouths large and curiously elongated heads almond-shaped eyes and hands with three fingers. Betty's husband, Barney, who had already been examined, sat nearby. Like Betty, he had been put into a trance by his captors and been examined in the same methodical way, except that he had been spared the needle, and his examiners had been surprised by his dentures. I don't think Barney was spared much. Yeah, he got, he got probed. The Hills decided it was their civic duty to reveal their experience to responsible UFO researchers. The story that unfolded bit by agonizing bit over the course of a year confirmed the events the Hills had recalled consciously and went much further. So you can see just a few years later, the story has changed dramatically. And then Betty makes a grand reemergence for the 20th year anniversary under the headline Alien Aiden. Alien Aiden? Adorable. It's okay. So, 1961, a postman and his wife arrived home from a drive through the mountains, puzzled by stains and rips on her dress and scuffs on his shoes, and their watches had stopped. What? This is all new. This is new stuff, except for the spots. Neither could remember what happened during the two-hour trip. That blank would not be filled in until four years later when the two submitted to hypnosis and their story made headlines. In an interview last week, she described her experience as sheer terror. I must have had a very strong heart, she said. I survived it. So Mrs. Hill says the aliens removed her dress, but apparently got something on it, leaving pink stains that have defied analysis. She points to the torn 
lining of the dress as evidence of a struggle, saying, You can see that I did a little bit of fighting all the way to the craft. She told them, as she tells anyone who listens, that the astronauts from other solar systems visit Earth regularly. She sits for hours at a time at the landing site near the coast, watching and taking photographs of objects she says are spacecraft. They're getting a real close look at us, she says. It's only a matter of time before they'll sit down and say, Hi, folks, we're here. So again, the story's changing. She's adding things. She's terrified. Although she admits she started in terror, but then was having a gay old time. And then this one is from 1985. It ends, Betty, who is now a widow, goes off to the backwoods several times a week, craning her neck toward the skies to see UFOs. We have 10 million objects circling the Earth, and only 10,000 have been identified, she says. There are a lot of things flying around that we don't know what they are. And then we make another grand reemergence in 86 for another anniversary. And she's gone back now to the place where they were kidnapped. Although only Barney ever identified it. She would never concede that anywhere was the spot where it happened when they went out with an ICAP researcher. Betty Hill shows no fear as she walks from the back road onto the wide path that leads to the woods. She remembers being here. But the first time she remembers being here was different. They dragged me kicking and screaming, she says of the kidnappers, who she contends blocked the road and took her and her husband Barney out of the car and yanked them into the wood to be examined in a flying saucer. Right here is where they were standing, Hill 67 says of a recent return to the spot where she says she was captured. And this is where they took us. She said, heading into the woods. Betty had nightmares about being captured, and Barney's health began to fail. When he didn't respond to medication, a doctor suspected emotional problems and suggested hypnosis. During one session, Barney mentioned being captured by strange beings. His wife, under separate hypnosis, recounted the same events, and the story began to unfold. They did? Yeah. Interesting. There we get that Barney went under hypnosis and then Betty separately went under hypnosis and they both told the same story. Same story. No preconditioning, no suspicion of aliens before his health began to fail. And then perhaps my favorite article on Betty Hill I've ever read. Headline, UFO lecturer retiring because of disappointment with field. Portsmouth, New Hampshire. After nearly 30 years of being the nation's number one UFO abductee, Betty Hill is retiring from public appearances to discuss her interrupted journey, partly because too many flakes are making UFO reports. (laughs) It doesn't faze her that many people think she is one of the flakes. With her tale of being kidnapped and examined by creatures from outer space, I'm not affected one way or the other. If a person believes me or doesn't believe, she said, sometimes I wish there weren't so many who believed. I wouldn't get so many phone calls. She has spoken around the world about what she and her husband Barney reported happened to them on the night of September 19, 1961. The Hills helped set the stage for today's UFO cult, says Philip Class, a writer and editor of Aviation Week and Space Technology magazine. Barney died in 1969. Betty Hill has spent her time lecturing about the alleged abduction and researching UFOs and watching lights in the sky. She plans to leave the limelight after the UFO conference in Portsmouth this month, marking the 30th anniversary of the encounter. I'm retiring because of my age and because of my disappointment in the way the UFO field is headed. I want a little more leisure time for myself. I'm tired of traveling. Too many people with flaky ideas and fantasies and imaginations are making UFO reports, she says. If you don't know the answer to something, you can always dream them up. Whether they're true or not, she said. A lot of UFO field is certainly not sticking to the facts. 
Simon suggested that Barney learned his account after hearing his wife describe vivid dreams she had of a UFO abduction, but she denies telling Barney anything about her dreams. We know that's not true. The two hours the hills lost doesn't surprise class, especially because they drove onto side roads in their fright. He said it would have been difficult for Hill to accept the experience was a dream after telling people about it. Then came the book and the movie, and there was no turning back. If she wants to believe that, bless her, he said. If she's withdrawing from the UFO movement because there are too many flakes on that, she and I can certainly agree, Class said. Hill calls Class a nobody who tried to make himself known by debunking UFOs. I have plenty of evidence that it happened, she said. She still has the binoculars and the torn dress and also keeps a plaster bust of her kidnapper. She calls him Junior. Betty's on to something there. She says if you don't know the answer to something, you can always just dream them up, whether they're true or not. Okay, so now I will officially ask you. Yes. Is Betty lying? I don't think so. Oh! And reading through all of this, I really don't think she's making it up. Oh, God. Okay. Consciously. Keyword. Consciously. I feel like that's a keyword. Consciously. Okay. So, I kind of do. Okay. Why do you think so? I Because I'm a bad person and Probably I don't so. want anyone to have any fun ever. Probably so. God, I can't believe you're making me be the skeptical one. I hate being the skeptical one. And I know you're not saying, yes, they were abducted by UFOs. I know you're not saying that, That's but you're still think. being... Okay, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I've been wrong once. Ever. Once. It's like her, the postscript in her original writing of her dreams that makes me so question it. Because she is, from the jump, giving herself an out. Like okay. she's saying, Barney's not going to remember. And if he does remember, it won't be like you remember it. Okay, I have thoughts on that. So she doesn't write the dream down the minute she has the dream, right? Right. So she's doing this months later. Mm -hmm. She has already talked to Barney about these dreams. And she's talked to the researcher from NICAP as well. Right, but that's for this part, she's talked to him and he said, I don't remember that. Do you believe in UFOs now? I don't remember that. And she's saying, well, that must be. And her, her mind is filling in the blanks. So something called confabulations. Whenever your mind so unconsciously or subconsciously fills in the blanks of something. Okay. And so whenever she has that cognitive dissonance of why... Is Barney not having these same dreams as I am? Her brain is filling in why. Okay. So while I don't think they were abducted by aliens, I also don't think she's some kook. I think that she has a fixed false delusion. Can you have one of those on purpose? No, but you can really lean into one. Okay. You know, you can lean into one or you can seek help to try to, you know, get over it. And she leans in. And then she is very quickly taken up by the community once it really goes public. Then she has no reason not to believe it. And everyone is supporting her ideas mm-hmm. and telling her, oh, that's amazing. Tell me more. Tell me more. And, and so she's she like, okay. Start remembering a little more. So you don't think it's a calculated. I don't. So let me tell you a story <laughs> that will very much highlight my point. Okay. Another famous alien abduction that occurred in the 70s this time is of a guy named Travis Walton. What's his deal? So on November 5th of 1975, six young loggers, along with their employer, were working in the Apache National Forest. 
They had a contract with the U.S. Forest Service to clean out the small trees. As Travis Walton writes, There was nothing in that sunny fall morning to foreshadow the tremendous fear, shock, and confusion we would be feeling as darkness fell. So that, Except your ominous foreboding foreshadowing. So that night they were driving home. Just then, my eye was caught by a light coming through the trees on the right, a hundred yards ahead. I idly assumed that the glow was the sun going down in the west. And then it occurred to me, the sun had set half an hour ago. Curious, I thought. It might be the light of some hunters camped here. Headlights or maybe a fire. This and, guy's a lumberjack? Yeah. Why and, is he right like a like he's at a retreat with... Shelley and Keats. <laughs> Curious, I thought. As they rounded a right-hand turn, they saw the source of the glow. As the truck skidded to a dusty halt on the rocky road, I threw open the door for a clearer view of the dazzling sight. My God, one of the men said, it's a flying saucer. We're still calling him that? In the 70s? Yeah. All right. Still calling him that now. Travis Walton jumped out and approached a woodpile to get a closer look. And of course, his fellow... Lumberjacks were calling to him to get the hell back over here. Bathed in the yellow aura, I stared up at the unbelievably smooth, unblemished surface of the curving hall. I was filled with a tremendous sense of awe and curiosity as I pondered the incomprehensible mystery possible within it. I had become aware of a barely audible sound coming from the ship. Strange tones. Then a big blue-green ray shoots from the bottom of the craft. Uh huh. The men in the truck saw my body arch backward, arm and leg outstretched, as the force of the blow lifted me off the ground. And then it drops them again. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the claw. Uh, yeah. Damn it. <laughs> it's the reverse. The claw. The reverse of the Toy Story. Ooh. So the lumberjacks are like, oh shit, and they get the hell out of there. What happened? But he's dropped. And he's picked up again. By the light or the lumberjacks? The light. Oh, okay. <laughs> the claw. <laughs> so at this point, I know two things to be true about Travis. I know that he has shitty friends. <laughs> As they're driving away, they do stop. They turn back. They see the craft take off. And they do go back and look for him. And he is nowhere to be found. And that leads me to my second thing I know about Travis. It's that. He's the slow zebra. He must be. I mean, <laughs> he gets picked off real easy. I also know that he really, really likes adverbs. He or his ghostwriter does. Yep. Which no one knows who ghostwrote his book. Because it was an actual ghost. Or an alien. Don't be silly. They communicate with their eyes. They don't need a system of writing. So they do go report his disappearance to the sheriff and tell them the whole story. So now we have law enforcement involved, and there will be official records of this report. Oh, yeah. And okay. five days later, they're given polygraph tests because they're worried that they like killed him or something. They're worried that the lumberjacks killed the slow zebra lumberjacks. Yes. Okay. Now, on that night, and it was five days later, at approximately a midnight, a call comes in to Travis's sister's house. Guess who it is? E.T. Phone home. It's E.T.? It's Travis. Oh, he sounded confused and disoriented. He was at a phone booth and in terrible pain, so his sister and brother drove at breakneck speeds to pick him up. He had a five-day growth of beard. It appeared thin, but it was otherwise all right. But he got dropped from the sky. Good point. How is he all right? 
So he was eventually contacted by the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. I haven't heard of that one. And they called in a team of medical experts. And ultimately, Walton was given the multiphase personality inventory, Rorschach polygraphs, psychological stress evaluator test, etc. Et he actually got probed. Yes. And you know, they found that he was pretty normal. And Walton only recalls an hour or two of his five-day absence. I bet it's well described. Yeah. But he unpacked his adjectives and adverbs. Oh, yeah. He claims to have awoken on a table in a room, which he at first assumed was a hospital. The ceiling seemed low, and there was an oval-shaped metallic-colored apparatus on his chest. The air in the room seemed oppressive, warm, and damp, and it took a few minutes to get his wits about him. But then when he became fully aware, he knew that he was not in an ordinary hospital. Abruptly, my vision cleared. The sudden horror of what I saw rocked me as I realized that I was definitely not in a hospital. I was looking squarely into the face of a horrible creature. It looked steadily back at me with huge, luminous brown eyes the size of quarters. Quarters? I don't know. Very big. So they were less than five feet tall, pale, large domed heads, large eyes, small mouths, noses, and ears, and their bodies were encased in a tannish orange seamless jumpsuit. And they were very thin. Their hands were small, delicate, without hair. Their thin, round fingers looked soft and unwrinkled. Oh, baby hands. Like baby hands like our dude. Right, like Adamanski's reporting. They struggled to his feet, grabbed a rod like object. And prepared to defend himself. He said, keep back, damn you. (laughs) Sorry. And these weak little aliens were scared of him, so they left. That was easy. He said, I've got to get out of here. I thought frantically with a surge of determination. There was a curving hallway about three feet wide outside the door. I looked to the right down the narrow, dimly lit passage in the direction the aliens had run, and there was no one in sight. So he eventually comes upon a circular room with a chair. It was too small for him, but he sat in it anyway. Had screens on each arm, and he starts pushing buttons. When I pushed the button, I noticed that the lines on the screen moved, and I recklessly pushed another green button, and the lines rapidly changed angles, slid down each other, then stopped. I pushed some of the other colored buttons. Nothing happened. (laughs) Nothing moved, and no sounds could be heard. Trembling, I sat down on the hard surface of the chair, and I put my hand onto the molded T-grip of the lever. The handle was slightly small for my hand. The whole chair seemed a little too small. I rotated the handle to the lever forward, feeling the slow, fluid resistance of it. I felt suddenly disoriented as the stars began moving downward in front of me in unison. Quickly, I pulled my hand off the lever, which returned to its original vertical position. The stars stopped moving, but remained (laughs) where they were when I released the lever. He straight up carjacked the aliens. Yes, there standing in the open doorway was a human being. Wearing a blue spacesuit with a helmet. What? Yeah, so he runs up to him. He starts like asking him questions. And he's like, he just kind of pulls him along. And they descend down a short, steep ramp, seven or eight feet to the floor. I looked around to discover that although I was outside that did dim, humid craft, I was not out of doors. I was in a huge room. And in the room were several other flying saucers. Okay, before we continue, I want you to do me a favor. What's that? I want you to change the music you're playing in your head. Like, less Star Wars, like, when he's pushing the buttons and shit. And uh. I want you to put, like... <laughs> 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 I 
like it is a zany sitcom moment that is like it's lit wrong and it's scored wrong. But it's like, like what Peter Griffin would do if he was a doctor. Really? Something ridiculous, like. Huh? <laughs> well, I keep thinking like when he's like the chair's too small for me. I'm like imagining myself at my kid's elementary school, like accidentally activating the smart board or something, and be like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> like when nobody else in the room and trying to turn it off. Like, oh my god. Okay, so. Yes. So then he eventually gets on a table and he's put to sleep and he can't remember anything else. In the bay with all the other flying saucers. There's more. To this There's story. more. Okay. So then he awakes in Heber, Arizona, where he's found. Lying on his stomach and raised up to watch the curved metallic hull of an aircraft taking off straight up, reflecting the yellow stripe of the dividing line of the highway below. So there's like a few miles down the road from where they took him. Yeah, I mean, he was in the area. In the area. The general vicinity. So they're good at navigating, but not that good. So in the days following Walton's UFO claim, the National Enquirer awarded him a nice sum of money for the best UFO case of the year after they allegedly passed polygraph exams administered by the Enquirer. Cool. So do we have any reason, like, to find this more dubious than we find Betty? Well, I think that, first of all, he got some money out of it. The National Enquirer gave him money. Now, they, of course, had this big prize out that $100,000. dollars mm-hmm. And if someone can kind of prove existence of aliens, you know. And they got a story and they said, hey, if you do a polygraph test... Uh, and you pass, you know, we'll give you some money. That counts as proof, basically. Yeah, and he was worried about it. Mm-hmm. And he made a deal with the National Enquirer that even if he didn't pass, that they would not reveal the results. What? That's not a polygraph. That's not a polygraph. That is the specter of a polygraph. Many, 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 many years later, the examiner that did the polygraph named McCarthy described the results as the plainest case of lying I've seen in 20 years. Shit. And Dwayne was heard shouting that he'd kill the son of a bitch if they let the information out. That Dwayne is one of the other workers. And of course, we've talked about how unreliable polygraph tests are. Now, whenever Travis came back, the first people they told were the UFO researchers and the media. And that's how the police found out about it. They've been worried that he was dead. Oh, my God. No, no. Okay, so however many lumberjacks there were, that's that's that many counts of filing a false report. There are now charges of conspiracy to commit a crime. Oh, yeah, extortion. Kind of oh, yeah. Like, these are criminals. <laughs> like, this is beyond a cute little story. Oh, yeah. So police did check it out. There was a phone call made from the phone booth around midnight. But there were no, none of his fingerprints on the phone. Well, the aliens removed them, clearly. Of course. While other people were out searching for Travis, two of the workers, Dwayne and Mike, spent most of their time giving interviews to UFO investigators. And among the taped interviews that the investigators shared with the police were two interesting stories. Mike stated that he was delinquent on his Forest Service contract and said he hoped Travis's disappearance would alleviate the situation. Oh. So the only way they could get out of it was an act of God. So that's defrauding. Mm-hmm. That's fraud. The U.S. government. Oh, and, my God. They are criminals. Yeah, I'm and, sorry. And they said that he and Travis were lifelong UFO buffs. That they frequently saw them and that they had recently discussed what to do if one of them were abducted. And they had a bug out yeah. bag for UFOs. Or like, was, well, they said that they like come back for the other one. 
Silly. But they talked about it. You know, they knew about it. And the sheriff, even in a report from the time, said that they were longtime students of UFOs. Even the sheriff in town's like, yeah, those are those boys who go down to the core and look for aliens. Important point. He says on his website, no, I did not recall any experiences under hypnosis that I could not remember before. Also, important to note, two weeks before the disappearance... Before Travis Walton's abduction, mm-hmm. NBC aired a TV movie. What was it? The UFO Incident. What was it about? The UFOs. It was the Betty and Barney Hill Shut case. Shut the frick up. Starring James Earl Jones and Estelle Parsons. James Earl Jones? The hell of a cast for a TV Fossa. movie. And so Walton wrote a book about it in 1978 called The Walton Experience. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the name of his bar band that he could never get off the ground. And it was adapted into the film Fire in the Sky. Oh, smoke on the water. Well, Fire in the Sky has become one of the quintessential alien abduction movies and has helped kind of codify very much. And it's it's not like the book. Really? No, it's it's really not. They definitely jazzed it up whenever the studio was planning on making it. They actually ordered the screenwriter, Tracy Torme, to write a flashier, more provocative rendering that has Walter enduring ghoulish experiments and being chased around by grumpy aliens. Grumpy! (laughs) Because the studio felt that Walton's recollection of what happened on the spaceships were too fuzzy and too similar to other televised close encounters. Isn't that convenient? So the reason we're talking about Travis Walton is because... That's your example of making it up. Okay, so we're going with Travis Walton made it up. Do you have any proof that he made it up? Well, he did appear on the show The Moment of Truth. Was it the truth? It was not the truth. Okay, so he took a lie detector on television and failed it miserably? Yes. Cool. Okay, so he's faking it. Definitely. Scientific analysis complete. He's faking it. Well, in addition to Travis Walton, there is another... Iconic? Iconic? Yes. Cult classic, maybe? Sure. Uh, Film that we must address? Communion. You know. With Christopher Walken. I thought you were going to go all Catholic bells, but yes, spoiler alert. Christopher Walken. (laughs) It's a Christopher Walken film, and it is kind of the source material from which we draw our... Our alien idea that we that we see so commonly now. In the film with Christopher Walken, there are many pauses and no cowbell. But some serious dancing. Oh, right. Alien rave. Um, alien rave. Alien rave. It's a thing that happens. But it's based on a true life account. Yeah. Kind of. Very interesting analysis of this one, uh, trying to decide whether it is fact or fiction, because the writer claims that he does not know if it is fact or fiction, but it definitely happened. And that's where we're going to start with this. At least he is starting in the gray. He's, oh, he does kind of start the gray, but that's another story. He writes a book eventually called The Grays. His name is Whitley Stryber, and you might know him from his work on The Hunger, which is a fantastic vampire movie from the 80s with David Bowie. Sure. It's great. Yeah. I made you watch it. It's no Labyrinth. Oh, we did watch it. I remember it now. (laughs) It was terrible. I loved it. It was ridiculous. 
It was on a list of movies that are better than Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> you're like, there's a David Bowie movie I haven't seen. Must do this now. I think Susan Sarandon's in it, too. But anyway, he wrote that. And he also wrote The Howling. With Jack Nicholson. And so that is his background. He's a horror sci-fi writer to begin with. And that's a very dangerous place to begin with when you're going to do some hypnosis and a little alien recall. Of course. So now he describes himself as a possible abductee or he should be described as a possible abductee because he never really defines what took him. He doesn't know if it's aliens or some like permutation of repressed memory. Of course. Or perhaps a glimpse into the collective unconscious. Yeah. Uh, maybe earth spirits. Could be. Just not sure. But the movie takes it completely in the alien direction. Yes. Yes, it does. And gives you a very classic depiction of what we think of as like a gray alien. Although it's not gray, it's kind of tannish. But it has like the you know the classic head shape and the eye shape and the thin thin framed body that's becoming very much the way aliens look. So the book is kind of free form and it's a combination of things recalled under hypnosis, active memory, and it begins when he's two years old okay. and goes until present day. Now, the first experience he describes in the book is a memory of himself at his grandmother's in age two, seeing a terrifying round object in the sky and a crowd of big gray monkeys breasting a hill. And it just gets weirder. So 1972 or 73, he and his wife are in San Antonio visiting their family, and they're sleeping in his sister's old bedroom on the second floor. Sleeping in sister's old bedroom on second floor, in middle of night, suddenly awakens and feels he heard a loud noise, leaves to get a glass of water, smells something like smoldering cardboard, on way to bathroom, sees a small dark figure with a red light in hand, bursts out of his old bedroom and runs down the stairs. Despite its very short stature, he dismisses it as a family member. Must be. June 1978. Something, scare quotes, terrible, occurs in the middle of the night, but the memory is nothing more than a phone call followed by a menacing visit and a series of menacing phone calls. The police are called and they check the premises but find nothing. He and his wife move. Good reason to move. Okay, sure. 79. He is awakened to the bizarre impression that people are pouring into the house through the windows. Some nights later, they hear screams. He and Anne call the cops, but the cops never show. They move again. I have a feeling there's something else behind this moving. <laughs> March 1983. Goes outside for a breath of fresh air. Ends up losing three hours. I hate when that happens. October 4th, 1985. Explosion in house. Jacques Sandalescu sees light with Anne Gottlieb. Here's explosion and here's little feet scurrying. A small hooded being enters Whitley's rooms and touches his head with a silver wand, making images appear in his head. He sees his dying father and mother just looking on an image of the world blowing up. December 26, 1985. Taken from bed, naked, into the woods, then up into craft. Probed, finger cut. He asked to smell entities. Entities in blue coveralls. February 7th, 1986. He is frantic, can feel the entity's presence. He and his wife could smell them. Smoldering cardboard, comma, cheese, comma, cinnamon, close parentheses. Loses four hours of time. Finds self naked. Next morning, finds two little triangles inscribed on left forearm. Remembers the odors he and his wife smelled that night. 
before were odors he had smelled in 72 and 73. Oh, no. So he began hypnosis in 86. So he's going to recall all the way back to his grandmother's house. Yes. And actually, his um, final recollection is of her house in 1967 when he had been lying in bed and suddenly there was an entity there that slaps him in the side of the head with a big, flat-headed silver nail. He changes into something else heavy and big. He is scared to death. Entity has a face like a giant fly. He walks out of the room, then suddenly back to bed. He and his sister see a fireball. He sees a skeleton-like being that grabs his shoulders. He's terrified. Then he finds himself calm on the grass while the beings work something into his hair. They go inside, report fireballs to parents. Then he regresses at doctor's suggestion to January of 1980 at age 36. Sees a meteor. Then there are six figures at bedside, and they get closer. Every time he closes his eyes, he can't wake up Anne. The dog won't wake up. Andrew screams, and when they run to him, his diaper is pulled down around his knees. Andrew's his son. They discover the seltzer explosion. Whitley returns. Description of the beings around the bed. Dark blue uniforms, gray skin, mushroom gray, funny smell too. Two big round eyes and a round mouth and possibly no noses. So that's kind of what happens in communion. But like the major abduction is the one on the 26th. This is the one that puzzles him nose where he like finds himself naked in the woods. I hate when that happens. Yeah, that that's the one where he's like, maybe I should see about this. But I find him very interesting because he has this writer background. Yes. And, and that, that, that always makes you wonder how much imagination they have. So I'm very willing to say that as with the Hills, there was some real precipitating incident. I will say that he did hang out with like William Burroughs. Oh, well. <laughs> and, and others. So, you know, the creative process can be a really difficult thing to navigate, especially with family And it happened when he was like alone in a cabin in upstate New York, probably deep in process. So I imagine the more imaginative you are, the more creative you are, the more interesting your hypnosis sessions. Yeah, and possibly the more easily can be led into confabulations, making their stories up, filling in those little gaps. Because it's what you do. It's your job. It's literally what he does. Yeah. But the refreshing thing about him is that he kind of takes everything with a grain of salt. And he says that this is a reality for him, but he doesn't know what it represents. Right, he is not automatically like, aliens took me, they were aliens, they were from Venus, Mm -hmm. and we had a rave, and then they told me about how Jesus was an alien. He ate organic food. He was from a star in the Capricorn constellation. (laughs) According to Chris Christopherson, not really. In later interviews, like this one is from 2015, he speaks about communion with kind of a begrudging attitude. On December 26, 1985, when he was 40 years old, Whitley Stryber awoke to being carried out of his cabin in New York's Hudson Valley to a tent in the surrounding woods, where he was beaten, poked, and prodded by unknown assailants. A circle of observers around him included giant insects, a masked, trollish figure, as well as an old friend, human, whose Stryber learned had died several months earlier. In the years that followed, Stryber had more strange experiences with the entities. And he would always call the entities visitors. Yes. One night, he found himself involved with an otherworldly lover. A year or two later, two mysterious beings implanted a small piece of metal in his ear. Over time, he recalled the events that had happened much earlier in life, encounters with diminutive blue men, 
out-of-body experiences and strange childhood episodes at Randolph Air Force Base in his native San Antonio. At least that is what Stryber perceived happened to him, as recorded in his best-selling 1987 book, Communion. As a result, he became, quote, the poster boy for alien abductions, despite maintaining that he didn't know exactly what happened to him. He received nearly half a million letters from readers describing their own close encounters after the book's publication. He says, my books were unfortunate in one respect, in that they were so vividly written that readers in the media looked at them as descriptions of experience rather than descriptions of perception, he says. There's a great deal of difference between the two. Yeah, so he really walks this fine line. And like the publishers published as nonfiction. They try to push that kind of alien angle. The cover of the book has a classic pinkish gray alien on the cover. And of course, the movie went in that direction. It's so interesting, too, because to Stryber, these experiences are more mystical right. than paranormal. Yeah. One very important note about Stryber is Stryber is emphatic when he says he doesn't believe in the supernatural or the paranormal. He simply believes that humans don't understand all the laws of nature yet. To me, the supernatural is something outside of nature. We need to accept the fact that there are things that happen around us that are not explained by science, but that does not mean they can't be. Very interesting. So his idea and his story became extremely popular, hitting all the bestseller lists, and became one of those prototypical, iconic alien abduction stories even though he straight up is like i don't know it may have just been a bad trip which i think is interesting and by the way william burrs was like a psychedelic writer that hung out with the beats and wrote the book naked lunch about an exterminator who hangs out with bugs at a bar in fact but other people were researching ufos and alien abductions and one of the big game changers was a guy named bud hopkins sounds like an astronaut name sure and he is one of the people that dubbed these aliens grays so the gray closely resembles the creatures encountered by travis walton shortened stature whitish gray skin large head huge cat-like eyes slit mouth small nostrils thin clawed-like limbs and most ufo researchers now believe that the gray is kind of the guy that's doing alien abductions. Okay. So Bud Hopkins, along with David Jacobs and Johnny Mack, really reinforced this idea. So Hopkins' interest in UFOs came from one August day in 1964, when he and two friends sighted a darkish elliptical object in the sky off Cape Cod. And by the mid-1970s, he was actively involved in investigating UFO, UFO cases, which involved missing time ah ah that sticks like whitley striber like betty and barney exactly now when he got started he would have the help of mental health professionals to hypnotize the abductees to try to get them to recall what happened in this missing time mm-hmm. and he released his first book in 1981 called missing time yes yay <laughs> did it have a subtitle of course Documented stories of people kidnapped by UFOs and then returned with their memories erased. So he was not a writer before this happened. He was an artist. Oh, interesting. And he was actually a well-respected artist. Interesting. Yes. What is his art like? He's like a sculptor. Like the Museum of Modern Art in New York, et cetera, So he was not a dabbler. He was like an artist by trade. He was not like your aunt says she's an artist. (laughs) She's like, don't you love my paint by number? Cool. 
Thanks, Florence. You see, here it said just to use tan, but I mixed it with a little yellow because I wanted it to be special. And that's how you get a gray alien. Boredom, you mean? Boredom, old, <laughs> old ladies and boredom. So now our prototypical story has changed. Previously, people had remembered seeing UFO and either blacking out or being abducted. Right. Well, that seems like a key component of an abduction story, you know, seeing a UFO or being abducted. But now we don't even have to have seen a UFO. Okay, this is like a tofurkey coming on. I feel it. Now, all you need is missing time. It's a tofurkey. And a sensation. It's a tofurkey. A feeling. It's like, I feel like it's a turkey. But it's but not. But it's not a turkey. It's an abomination. <laughs> Just eat tofu or eat turkey. Don't mold it into turkey. So Hopkins got to start in the late 70s doing this kind of research about missing time when he met who he called Steve Kilburn, the pseudonym, who was deathly terrified about a certain stretch of road he used to pass. So he wanted to use hypnosis to find the reason behind his fears. He thought he might have been abducted. At first, Hopkins was not sure about it. He even admits that he felt like it was almost ridiculously flimsy pretext for entering into the costly and time-consuming process of hypnotic regression. I think that's a sound sound theory but but with the help of dr gerard franklin who hypnotized him at kilburn in 1978 he was able to recount about his car being pulled off the road by some strange force after which he witnessed several small beings who took him and subjected him to physical examination all i can think is there's such a heavy confirmation bias in this particular account like the guy's like i think i was abducted but I don't remember being abducted. Hypnosis magically, you're abducted by aliens. It just seems like there are so many other, like, fantastical. They could be fantastical. Could be anything. Explanations. Like, I'm not even saying, like, there must be some logical explanation. But I'm like, why is that the thing that draws, that comes out? Like, why yes. isn't it, it's never ghost. It's never, right. you know, it's, it's never Santa. It's <laughs> Those stories are kept secret by the government. I really want to read those stories. Do you think I could put in a FOIA request? I was hoping so. Can I put in a FOIA document request for Santa Claus? Yes. <laughs> Can we do that? How much does it cost? Like $37? Let's do it. You're going to get all the NORAD data? What is NORAD? NORAD is like what they used to track like missiles and nukes and stuff. Oh. But on, you don't know this on Christmas Eve. You can yes. go to the NORAD site and they'll yes. show Santa's tracks around the world. I was like, is Norad like NICAP? Is it like mystical creatures? Do they have that? Okay, I'm on board. And now the stories start to really evolve. Because usually people that have episodes of Missing Time don't just have one episode of Missing Time. Okay, so we have repeat offenders with multiple Missing Time episodes. Yeah, so previously we had abductees that would see UFO. They're in the wrong place, wrong time. They get picked up, examined, returned, go on home. But now we have these people that are getting abducted and their memories erased. They don't know it happened. And it's happening multiple times, maybe throughout their life. Just like Whitley Stryber described. Interesting. So Virginia Horton is an example. Her first strange memory was as a six-year-old on her grandparents' farm near Lake Superior in the summer of 1950. Horton had entered a barn to gather some eggs when... 
all of a sudden, she found herself standing in the yard with a large cut on her leg. Her second experience occurred during a family picnic when she was 16. She remembers following a beautiful, almost mystical, deer into the woods. The next thing she recalled was coming out of the woods with a horrible, bloody nose. Based on Horton's memories, Shannon went hypnotic regression with Hopkins. So eventually Hopkins started just doing hypnosis on his own. Does he have a certificate? I'm sure that's exactly what he has. <laughs> Under hypnosis, Horton told of encountering gray-colored beings who examined her. And Hopkins placed a lot of importance on the second incident with the mystical deer. He thought that they had used this, like... Bait. Like a hologram or something to, like, bait her in. And then he was also worried about this bloody nose. Mm-hmm. And he thought that they must have inserted a probe into her left nostril, which would explain all of it. Would it? Sure. Why are they probing things? We're not going to get into that Freudian analysis today. Well, no, I mean, it could be Freudian, but it could also be like, don't you have machines that can just see inside of people? That's a wonderful, wonderful point. <laughs> like you've mastered intergalactic space travel, but you don't have an MRI. So as he kept researching, he found that the majority of abductees showed evidence of having been abducted several times, including when they were small children. It's amazing. You keep asking questions and you keep right finding answers. And many of them had had this probe inserted into their nostril and he believed to have an implant or tracking device. So this led him to the conclusion that extraterrestrials need something from humans. Maybe... Our genetics. No, they're doing okay. They can fly to our planet and we can't fly to theirs. They're winning. No, so that is a huge point that is in a lot of stories is that their race is dying. And that's why they need to like inbreed or their planet's dying. And so they need to come and find a new place to live. So that's also the plot of Man of Steel. Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, fine. So they need our genes, not our denim. And they're here to take it by whatever means necessary but only one person at a time they needed travis walton's denim and flannel (laughs) now hopkins second book really made an even bigger splash it was called intruders okay yes that i've seen the incredible visitations at copley woods copley woods in one specific place it's just one place it was the main story so he was convinced that abductions were part of the extraterrestrial breeding experiment in which women were impregnated by the aliens only to have their fetuses later removed no so they were trying to create these hybrid children so the main case in the book is of kathy davis who claimed to have had upwards of a dozen abduction experiences from childhood through adulthood of course, her recall was helped by hypnosis, which Hopkins did. What question about hypnosis? If you're under hypnosis and someone says, do they put anything in your nose? Does that increase the chances that you'll say, like, yes? You don't have to be under hypnosis. Oh, okay. You know that. You get a lead. Well, I know in a courtroom setting. You don't have to be under hypnosis. So when you're in a really highly suggestible state, of course. It's like with our kids where I'm like, if you give them two options, they're always going to say it's the second thing. You're like, was it big or little? They're like, little. Every time. And then you'll be like, was it little or big? And they're like, big. You know? Well, so we watched the Nova documentary. Ooh, yeah, we did. That really upset me. So it was done in the early-ish 90s and featured Bud Hopkins. And they followed him through a whole investigatory cycle. Okay, so this one got to me because it's a mom with kids. And... 
I'm a mom with young kids and the crazy was just radiating off of this. Crazy is not the right word. No, but the the need she had for this to be true was readily apparent. I, I felt like Hopkins, as an investigator, was sort of taking advantage of it. And that really troubled me because... Well, his interviews with the children... And that, that's what I was going to get to is like the mom. Okay. So the mom bought intruders when she was checking out at the supermarket. That's was, literally what she says. Yes. And she just happens to read it. And after she reads it, she realizes that her children are showing signs of having been abducted. Yes. And like I said to Jacob, as we watched the documentary, I was like, well, it's very lucky she read that book. Because then she'd never know. She would never know. So she brings in Hopkins to interview her children, her four-year-old and her two-year-old. Two-year-old. About their experiences with aliens. And it begins with him showing an array of drawings, different characters. And there's like a smiley face and Batman and a dog and an alien. And when he gets to the alien, he like pauses meaningfully and looks at the child. Like, is has this one good or bad? Well, that's later. He has to recognize oh. it first. Oh. And they're going back through the pile and they sort it. He has yes. a good stack and a bad stack. And he's like, is this one good or is it bad? Is it bad? Yes. And we've kind of talked about how children will answer a question to please an adult. And this, is, there's such leading questions, and he is so forcing the draw, mm-hmm. as a magician would say. You know, they force you to pick your card out of the deck without you knowing it. Mm-hmm. He's making you, even though it's. I really do think it's probably subconscious again with him. Oh, oh, I don't think he's maliciously yeah. concocting anything at all. But he, he definitely hopes to see a certain yes. result. It's almost a confirmation bias. It is a bias. But he, it's leading him to behave a certain way towards these kids. And, like, he asked the kid, like, do you ever see him? He's like, yeah. He's like, do you see him at night? Yes. Do you see him in your bedroom at night? Yes. <laughs> what does he do in your bedroom at night? Batman. He flies? Yes. Batman doesn't fly! <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's sort of painful to watch because I know that this is a reality that's being created for the kids. Like you can see it happening. And because mom is invested Mm -hmm. as well, this is going to be a mythology that they they live with. Yes. It is a scary idea. And once you introduce a scary idea to a child and you can so easily reinforce it and they will be positively received when they come to their mom with these stories forever and ever. And that just really upset me. Something about it just kind of... Got to me. Yeah, but I'll definitely post a link to that. And it's just interesting to watch him kind of go through the interview. But again, I don't think he's doing it to be some bastard boogeyman. Yeah, I I think it's subconscious. I do. I really do think he he buys in. And a lot of these people, I think, do. So with all of this information, all the pieces finally fit for Hopkins. How an abduction occurs and how one experiences it is completely new. All you need is this missing time, this weird feeling. Maybe you thought you saw something in the corner of your eye when you woke up in the morning. Or maybe you were like lying there and you couldn't move, but you were sure you saw something standing over you. Like an old hag. Right. 
And so one thing that is frequently brought up as a possibility for many of this type of abduction story is the sleep paralysis old hag, which we've talked about in our old hag episode. (laughs) But that is a very good hypothesis because a lot of the stories are, you know, you wake up in bed, you feel like something's off. A lot of people are abducted from their bedrooms. Mm -hmm. They might see something or wake up where they can't move or can't feel or have these distorted images they see when they wake up Mm -hmm. which is your classic kind of hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucination this hallucination that can occur while you're going to sleep or while you're waking up yeah if you do go back and listen to the old hag episode should your curiosity be piqued i talk about this experience I had on that one, um, which was horrifying. It was one of the scariest experiences ever. Now put that through Bud Hopkins lens. If you revisit an alien. Yeah. It would so be taking your child. Yes. So yeah, you're welcome to go revisit that, uh, that piece of work and see how easily I could sell that story. So you remember how I said that 3 million people had been abducted? Oh, I do. I remember that because that number seems incredible to me. I don't even know 3 million people. Well, so it's actually 3.7 million. Sorry, I lowballed that number. (laughs) But you told me it was from like a real poll, the Roper poll. It does come from a real poll. So just like any polling organization, you can pay to put a few questions on the poll. You know, you can use them for your own research. Mm -hmm. And so Bud Hopkins, along with some other guys, went ahead and added some questions to this poll. Have you been abducted by aliens? Was that a question? So they did ask about UFOs. So they asked, have you seen a ghost? Have you seen or dreamed about UFOs or leaving your body? And then they included five what they called indicator experiences. What? Waking up paralyzed with a sense of strange person or presence or something else in the room. Feeling that you were actually flying through the air, although you didn't know why or how. Experiencing a period of time of an hour or more in which you apparently had lost, but you could not remember why. Seeing unusual lights or balls of light in a room without knowing what was causing them. Or finding puzzling scars on your body. Oh, God, Jacob. Yeah? I answered yes to four out of five of those. Right, and a lot of people would. And so if you answered four out of five of those... Bud Hopkins says you have been abducted. Oh, God. I need to call Bud. I feel like we just need to have a big old sit down. I would love to be hypnotized. Do you think he'd let me be hypnotized and use the audio on the show? Oh, my God. That'd be amazing. (laughs) But he just extrapolated the percentage and multiplied it by the amount of people in the United States and came up with 3.7 million. Oh, my God. That's terrible math. Bud, go back to sculpting. How many people responded? Uh, 5,947. So 119, or 2%, had four of the five indicators. 2% of 5,000 somehow equals 3.7. Oh. Then you multiply 2% by 185 million people in the U.S. At the time. When this was done in 92. And then you you conclude. 3.7 million million Americans. Have been abducted by Yes. I feel like they need a lobbying group for Congress or something. Like, this is a significant number of people. So Bud Hopkins, in a way, kind of recreated the idea of what an abduction is. Mm -hmm. Because now that theme is very prevalent. You know, you wake up and you're missing time and you have a little scar or something like that. And maybe it was aliens that abducted you. I should go see if this is aliens. 
under hypnosis, someone says, did you see an alien? And I'm, I say yes. Yes. Cool. Mm -hmm. This all seems very scientifically sound. Oh, definitely. So even with the changes in how one is abducted, the abduction narrative is very concrete. Okay. So Thomas Bullard did a great article in the late 80s on this, and he examined 300 UFO abduction stories. And he kind of teased out, he's a folklorist. I was going to say, this is how you catalog folklore. Exactly, he's a folklorist. (laughs) This was published in the American Journal of Folklore. Oh, my darling, no wonder. And he teased out kind of a narrative. So there's the capture. Somehow the person is coerced or incapable of resisting and taken from their terrestrial surroundings to some sort of other surroundings. Okay. You have your examination and procedures. Mm-hmm. Could be invasive physiological or psychological procedures. On occasion, simulated behavioral situations, training, testing, or sexual liaisons. I think sexual liaisons probably come up most frequently. And then you have the conference, where you sit around and have tea, chat. No, where they you telepathically or verbally communicate with the extraterrestrials. Like, what do you want with me? And they're like, you're special. Yes, exactly. Then they might give you a tour. And that might be somewhere you see around the vessel, or maybe their home planet, mm-hmm. or maybe a mothership, something. You get secret knowledge. Exactly. And then there's always the loss of time, which could be due to medical intervention, fear, or both. Then you return to Earth with new injuries or disheveled clothing or something along those lines. Mm. Something. Maybe even just an, an odd feeling. Yeah. An indicator experience. And then you can have a theophany. What's that? That's where your ideas of this experience start to change. So while you're having it, it's frightening. But after, you might see it as like a mystical experience or even start to have kind of a Stockholm Syndrome or wanting to know more, something that makes it kind of almost positive. And then you have your aftermath, the abductees coping with all these experiences. And so he was able to confirm this narrative in 75% of the 300 stories that he cataloged. Wow, that's impressive. Now that, my friends, is an, an impressive percentage. Now, there are stable content elements, especially when this was done. Disc-shaped craft. Mm -hmm. Exam room, often circular and domed with diffuse light, spare furnishings, and exam table. It's been all the stories. Very Betty. All the stories. Right. All of them. Well, there's a wedge-shaped rooms. Depends. Because they're like little pieces of the pie, you see. Uh, And squash. There'd be cool air... Might be heavy or hard to breathe. Um, you know, you have these humanoids with what we've called the classic gray appearance now. These wraparound eyes, barely existent mouths, nose, ear holes. Jimmy Durant noses. No, no, no it's changed no. now. Sorry, changed now. I'm That's Betty's initial description. And there's some really interesting themes that run through all these stories. Okay. Reproduction. In these experiences, they're either examining like genitals mm-hmm. or. Like with Betty and Barney, or they're harvesting fetuses, or having sexual liaisons, or, you know, in some fashion, addressing the process of reproduction. Right. Like, they can't reproduce anymore. They need the human genes. They need something. Interesting. And there's some really interesting kind of undercurrents to this. Like, he pointed out this depth of consistency, saying, like, one man reported being rejected 
because he'd had a vasectomy. <laughs> and another reported being rejected because he was too old and infirm for their purposes. That's interesting. And then you also see the dying planet, the infertility kind of ideas. Uh-huh. Sometimes the other world is like dim or desolate or devastated place or it's always cold without colors with dim light. But sometimes they'll take you to this kind of garden, this Eden, this forest that's lush and green, but it's in a certain spot in the ship or it's on their home planet where they take you underground. And that's where they've like been able to cultivate some things. Mm-hmm. So they're basically interstellaring out. Like they're they're going in search of a habitable planet. Yes. Like, okay. Something. There's some sort of, you know, I think that really ties in with the kind of reproduction and fertility themes. Right. They are no longer fertile. Ergo, they need something from us. Like they have to have a reason. It gives yeah, them a motive. Exactly. Um, and then sometimes they can bring prophecies, warnings of self-destruction. Oh, yeah. Maybe like their home planet. Or they may even charge the witness with a mission to aid the work of salvation. Abductees should study religion or philosophy or the occult and become more caring and loving and thoughtful of others. So almost like a conversion moment. Yeah. I mean, that even fits back with our dude. Our first dude, Adamansky. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The Venusians were coming to help. (laughs) But it's interesting because these current abduction stories really don't share anything with those previous stories. Like there's Adamansky stories. Like there's a little tiny bit, but there's otherwise the abduction, the medical exam. It doesn't fit at all. It doesn't fit with the... 1987 mystery airships, just seeing the flying discs. No one was taken for a ride or examined. You mean 1897? Yes. Fits perfectly with the 1987. Yes. (laughs) But even though these stories have this very sci-fi framework, abduction reports really follow the same path as these older supernatural encounter stories, with aliens serving as our supernatural or divine being. We've mentioned a few of those. Whitley Stryber was really on to that. I think it's somebody that went back to old folklore for a werewolf story and a vampire story and brought it into the modern age. He had to recognize folkloric theme. You know, he obviously had an allegiance to the to the source material. Well, I mean, as we've talked about, you don't have to go back and read all of those books. You don't have to be a an academic studying folklore mm-hmm. to understand folklore themes because folklore themes are innate young would say things he would so ufos themselves the discs start to supplant these traditional concepts about anomalous lights these glowing balls that dart around back and forth then appear out of nowhere and disappear suddenly like will-o'-wisp exactly so that is a a more impossible feat well, and we can even look at the physical descriptions of the beings. You know, they're small, diminutive, often with kind of ivory or gray skin, very soft and gentle features, and even described as fragile by a lot of the early cases. So one classic UFO case is of Betty Andreessen. She recounted that when she was 12, a being emerged headfirst from a hole in the ground and was wearing a suit that resembled the bark of a tree. Another repeated abductee described an episode when he was young when a small being dressed in green invited him to play, then entered his body, then they went to a hole in the ground and fell into an underworld where he was taken to a room and had our standard exam. 
So the physical description is interesting. I went back and kind of looked to see if there were any tie-ins in our folklore um, that we've covered so far. And I have to say, like, the closest thing to to this idea is probably goblins. Yeah. As I was reading about them, they're tricky and they stay invisible, right? That's their their deal. But have you ever, like pierce their invisibility. They're kind of horrible looking and kind of sickly looking and very frail and, you know, love to mess with people. But then you also have some serious fairy reflections in sort of the motive description that we were covering earlier. Like they need something from humans. Fairies always need something from humans down to leaving the milk and cream out for them. Leprechauns. Leprechauns, little little people, we folk, the good people. But there is this kind of dependency on mankind, even though they are somehow more evolved and more perfect than we are. Yeah, that's a really good point. But then you can see some echoes of some older folklore in this underground idea. Without a doubt. So in older tales, the other world may lie beneath the ground or in the air or in between mountains or under a mountain or on the other side of the veil underwater underwater and they usually have to pass through some sort of tunnel some sort of entrance to get into this place often described as with brilliant lights and frequently in like like a big dome like a dome shaped Mm -hmm. cavern of some sort with this diffuse light so Betty Anderson says she reported that in one scene, she's escorted through a large forest made entirely of fine crystal where transparent flowers and butterflies momentarily acquired colors and life when touched. I would, I would trade with her. Like I like her story. <laughs> she loves her story. She's one of those people that has a very positive experience. And like we watched the documentary love and saucers, which is fabulous. It's only an hour long. You can totally make time for it in your life. And, Don't watch it with your mom. And it talks about a guy in his long-term relationship with an alien who would come and they would copulate. They needed his genetic material. And both of these last two things we've talked about, he kind of mentions in his story. Like he talks about the little people coming when he's at his house and they're coming just out of the forest. And then he talks about when he's taken to their ship and it's described as like a big underwater dome with just light coming from some unknown source. So this is a tale that was recorded from Wales in 1894 and it's called The Old Man and the Fairies. Great title. Wonderful. I have no notes. Many years ago, the Welsh mountains were full of fairies. People used to go by the moonlight to see them dancing for they knew where they would dance by seeing green rings in the grass. There was an old man living in those days who used to frequent the fairs that were held across the mountains. One day, he was crossing the mountains to a fair when he got to a lonely valley and he sat down, for he was tired, and he dropped off to sleep, and his bag fell down by his side. And when he was sound asleep, the fairies came and carried him off, bag and all, and took him under the earth. And when he awoke, he found himself in a great palace of gold, full of fairies dancing and singing, and they showed him everything, the splendid gold room and gardens, and they kept dancing around him until he fell asleep. When he was asleep, they carried him back to the same spot where they'd found him, and when he awoke, he thought he had been dreaming, looked for his bag and got hold of it, but he could hardly lift it. When he opened it, he found it was nearly filled with gold. So that story exactly follows the narrative structure of an abduction story. Yes, it does. 
Missing time, even. Even missing time. He's picked up when he's asleep. He's taken to the other world. He's shown around. He comes back. They return him to where he was. He has missing time. And he even has some sort of proof. Like a mark or a metal insert in your ear. But gold's better. I would so much rather a bag of gold than an anal probe. But you can't tell anyone about it or it vanishes. That's the rest of the story. Exactly. Fairy gold. Can you spend it? Yeah. You just can't talk about it. But it might turn to wood. (laughs) That's fine. It does with other people. Very fast out of the store. So this is another story that was recorded in 1910 from Scotland called The Hunchback of Willow Break. Not PC, dude. So this guy... There's like a whole tale type of hunchbacks and fairies. Oh, there is. And they're all fabulous. They're really good stories. So this guy has a hunchback and he gets taken by fairies. This is what you need to know to enter the story with me. The other fairies seized him. And when he thought that they had pulled him to pieces among them, they let him go. And he was as straight and as active as he behooved to be. And he heard the sweetest music he'd ever listened to. And it filled his heart. And he began to dance with the little people that were on the floor and stopped not until he fell, unable to stand with fatigue. He had not lain but a short time on the floor till sleep crept over him and he felt the fairies carrying him away through the air and the soft, sad music receding further and further from him. At length he awoke and on looking round, he found himself lying in the willow brake. He rose and returned home. He had been away a year and a day. In that time, so great a change had come over him that it was with difficulty that his own mother knew him. She rejoiced at his coming, and after that, found him a great help, for now he had a hand for every trade. So that's interesting because he even has that theophany. He has come back a changed man. Right, and he has way more missing time. A lot of missing time. But he also has his hunchback fixed. That's cool. Medical testing. So this was recorded in England in 1865. It's from the Parochial History of Cornwall. Cool historical document. It's called The Lost Child. Mr. Halls has given one version of the story, which differs in some respects from the tale, as I heard it, from an old woman some 30 years since who lived in this parish. Her tale was to the following effect. There's a child that goes missing, hears a beautiful song, and goes toward the woods. When he reached the verge of the woods, the music was so exquisite a character that he was compelled to follow the sound which appeared to travel before him. Lured in this way, the boy penetrated the dark center of the grove, and here, meeting with some difficulties owing to the thick of the underwood, he paused and began to think of returning. The music, however, became more ravishing than before, and some invisible being appeared to crush down all the low-tangled plants, thus forming him a passage, over which he passed without any difficulty. At length he found himself on the edge of a small lake, And greatly to his astonishment, the darkness of the night was around him, but the heavens were thick with stars. The music ceased, and wearied with his wanderings, the boy fell asleep on a bed of ferns. He related on his restoration to his parents. He was taken by a beautiful lady through palaces of the most gorgeous description, pillars of glass supported by arches, which glistened every color. These were hung with crystals far exceeding anything which were ever seen in the caverns of the Cornish mine. It is, however, stated that many days passed away before the child was found by his friends. At length he was discovered one lovely morning sleeping on a bed of ferns, on which he was supposed to have fallen asleep on his first adventurous evening. So the woman reasons that when he was asleep, he had been carried through the waters to the fairy abodes beneath him. She felt assured that the child would be treated and kept 
under a special guardianship of the sprites forever afterwards. Of this, however, tradition leaves us in ignorance. This one reminds me so much of the story that Bud Hopkins relates in his first book about the deer luring her, the child into the woods. Right. Right and then down. even the, someone said there were crystals, like the... Oh, and Betty Anderson was talking about the crystals. Right. Mm-hmm. And that is what made me think about this. So you can see these themes are very prevalent in old stories. And while they may use magic as something that we could not understand, like obscure memories or to whisk you away, now these aliens are using science and technology, mm-hmm. but something far beyond our mind could ever comprehend. Aliens often disorient and take away their captives so our fairies confuse and bewilder travelers, cause paralysis with a touch, and violate every law of nature. <laughs> so in the classic story, you have some sort of, you know, exam, you know, some sort of physical activity that occurs. Yes, they are sticking things everywhere. Up your nose, up your ear. Now, of course, this specific exam is not mirrored in older fairy tales, but fairies do commit body violation of some sort or punishment or lead people astray. Several abductees have reported an ordinary human on the ship who's helping the aliens run their test. There's an entire tale type of fairy midwives, and they're not fairies who are midwives. It's people who have to be midwives for fairies and or other mystical beings because apparently they need our help to reproduce crazy when also you know we've talked about changelings before yes and this is when a human baby is subbed out for a fairy baby who's kind of a jerk right but oftentimes the human that's taken is kind of brought in as a servant or even slave or just a plaything if they're especially pretty and so these reproductive themes are of course prevalent throughout all of mythology, you have people being stolen away for sex all the time. Yep. You know, Hades takes Persephone. Zeus takes everyone. That's true. You have the Nephilim, the giants of the Old Testament mating with human women. You have incubi and succubi demons. You have de- the devils taking women away. You have La Llorona seducing men and taking them away. You have vampires feeding off the lifeblood and sexual energies. Of the young and virile. And of course you have your changelings. And so one interesting kind of folkloric tradition that can be included here are the mystical initiation rite. So the, the like physical trial that the person must endure. Like right. the, the travail. Yeah, and so one person put forward this Siberian shamanistic ritual. Where the inductee would go into a trance. And then two helpful spirit guides would appear to bring him to a uniform cave with dim light, bring them to the other spirits that would then harm the candidate, including possible dismemberment. The head and the brain may be removed and the eyes torn out. Yeah. You do see those kind of, that kind of imagery in abduction stories as well. One abductee reported an experience he had as a child under hypnosis, of being abducted and split breastbone to pubic bone, and they performed some sort of procedure on his internal organs, then sealed him up and left no trace. Ew. And in this tradition, shamanic initiates may also even have inserted into their bodies rock crystals to give them special powers. I mean, that is down to the metal insert in the ear. Exactly. Like, that's, or the nose. Uh, well, Whitley Stryber's was in his Depends ear. Depends who you ask. 
And now some abductees do change these long-standing habits and preferences. And you would see people return from land of fae with newfound knowledge or maybe second sight or come home physically or mentally changed. We talked about the hunchback Mm -hmm. being that way. Or maybe even sit around pining for the beauty of the other world. So interestingly enough, Jeffrey Cripple, who is also in Love and Saucers, He's a professor of comparative religion. Yes. At Rice. Studies alien abductees. Cripple suggests that Stryber's experiences with the visitors are not unlike St. Paul's encounter on the road to Damascus or Moses' interaction with the burning bush. If Stryber is telling the truth, and Cripple is convinced that he is, his accounts might offer religious historians a modern case study of perceived encounter with extraordinary beings. I mean, you can see that anyway. You can see it, Joseph Smith. Meeting the angel and getting some cool tablets. Mm-hmm. You can see it with just a born again Christians. Right. And I think that's why people are so interested in retconning old religious experiences to resemble alien abductions. Like saying like, oh, Jesus was an alien. Exactly. For example. Yeah. So ancient aliens. We're not doing ancient Whole aliens show today. About it. And I even think of like Dante's visit to hell. Visit yeah. Visit to the absolutely. underworld. But there are differing views on these alien experiences. You know, Betty Andreessen is a prominent abductee who loves her experience. She's written four books about it. I mean, they're lovely. They sound lovely. She even says that the gray-like beings claim to be Earth's guardian angels. Oh, how cute. She says they've always coexisted with man and are genetically related. They've identified themselves as caretakers of the forms of life that have developed on Earth. Over their existence, they have conducted a long-term genetics program to prolong and improve life on the planet. So they're like nature spirits. Hers are like nature spirits. They really do sound like that. But in these narratives, you can see that people are using their experiences like a religion. They can get self-guidance on how to live or how to achieve a sense of unity and transcendence. And it also gives them a sense of individual significance. Right, because you're special. They picked you. They want your genetics. Out of all the 3.7 million people on the planet, they picked you. And it's really even interesting to see this shift from nice hippie aliens to evil menacing aliens. Right. And it really, you know, looking at comparative religion, is like what happened with these old tales of elves and dwarves and fairies in Europe in the 10th and 11th century. Karen Louise Jolly said that amoral creatures such as elves were gradually demonized to fit that good evil paradigm of the Christian moral universe. Now this process enhanced their similarity to demons, their invisibility, their malicious attacks, the need to charm them away, all took on new meaning in Christian eyes so that elves began to resemble the fallen angels who seek to inflict internal and permanent harm on humans and their works, and they were all demons for Christian ritual to exercise. So what do you think led to that change in the abduction narrative? Like, what do you think, just our culture, where, yeah. we, where we just have to have a good guy? Have to have that good evil paradigm. Yeah. So in maybe like in the 50s, we were more willing to think that man was evil. 
that man was the bad guy, the aliens could be the good guys. But when we looped around and decided to be the heroes of our own story again, of course, we had to demote them. I think so. So during the decade of the 70s, there were lots of magazine articles and books and etc. dramatically challenging the alleged existence of UFOs and actually depicting the entire phenomenon as a satanic plot. William Alnor, for example, said, I believe UFOs are real, and they represent a demonic delusion from the other side. I also believe that some of the flying vehicles they allegedly arrive in may be the work of fallen angels. They are not physical, but they are very real. I love all our abductees so much more now, because that kind of crazy is not even fun. Also, Frank Elnut said, that the purpose of these space demons was to confuse people about the true source of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. People are drawing on this common pool of myths and ideas that can be traced all the way back to witch crazes in the Middle Age and early Christian thought and Jewish apocalypticism. We've all talked about all of that (laughs) before. So for a great example, how about the 16070s demon classic we haven't talked about? What? Rosemary's Baby. Oh, we haven't. We haven't. I was like, I can't believe this. There can't be one. So in Rosemary's Baby, we have lovely Mia Farrow with a fabulous haircut. And Roman Polanski is directing. And he introduces us to a secretive group of individuals in service of a personal devil, to abominable satanic rites, and to the suicide of a girl who had come into contact with this activity, to rape between an incubus and a sedated Rosemary... And finally, to the Genesis 6-like product of the union, a demon child. So Rosemary has the satanic baby, and then you have the children of the village of the dam, and they show that these infants, the product of these unions, are themselves a threat. Yes. And you can see this idea of aliens as more of like this demonic creature. Whenever you look at some of the sightings, that don't fit in with that established narrative. On November 16th of 1963, four witnesses in Sandling Park in Kent saw an oval-shaped object land near some trees, after which a human-sized black figure, headless with webbed feet and wings like a bat, shuffled toward them. Sounds vaguely demonic. In September of 1973, a family in North Carolina reported a being with glowing red eyes, pointed ears, Long hair, a hooked nose, and gray skin. And that sounds like it might be his cousin. And a month later, a copper-colored UFO swooped down over Tennessee, and a tall creature with claw-like hands and wide-blinking eyes attempted to grab several children. And then the clowns in the van came by. Exactly. So witnesses report aliens looking like giants, like dwarves, like demons, like hairy creatures, like bald creatures, creatures with three legs, creatures with no legs. There was one that was just like a blob. (laughs) But they don't all fit that gray alien stereotype, you know, character that is always appearing in stories that really kind of get the press and get picked up by Mm -hmm. the ufologist. So I think one of the most important things to like take away from this is that these are intense personal experiences for the people who believe they've had them. True. I don't think a lot of people are coming forward with malicious intent. You've converted me. Good. And I am struck by the similarities. It's too many not to acknowledge. But I'm also struck by how this kind of like new folklore has evolved in the age of mass media. We don't have to wait to hear about it from a friend. 
Well, it's hard to say how much mass media really affects the rise of these stories, but at the least they pass on the idea of alien abductions. Many people only realize that they've been abducted after they have heard other stories, magazines, that read the National Enquirer, seen talk shows featuring Bud Hopkins or uh, Whitley Stryber, or seen movies based on Betty and Barney Hill's case. And your various UFO groups are quick to come and validate. They'll send an investigator out there, take your statement, examine the area, and the best of these stories go straight to the media. And the cycle continues. It's interesting. I actually found an old article by a science editor named Blake Slee from July 20th, 1947, that talks about the human tendency to spread these stories and how he believes that the flying disc craze that was so rampant at the moment is sort of spreading like stories of pixies or devils or mysticism or cults or whatever. He says it's just, you know, the next thing. And the entity we create always depends upon the person in power. And he says that the people in power at that time are Einstein and Marconi. The the new age of science. Yes. The atomic age. The atomic age. So there's a a culture-wide fear. And these discs, these things from outer space, are a personification of that. Exactly. You know, we don't have to hear these stories from Grandma. She's tucking me in a bed about the fae folk that live on the other side of the hill. You know, we can read these stories. We don't even have to hear it from a friend. We can see it on the internet. Or we can hear it from a scientist. Or hear it on a podcast. Sorry. And it's so hard to disprove the existence of extraterrestrial life. And this quick advancement of technology, to someone a few years ago, could even seem magical. point I especially liked in that article was, he says, we're not individuals. We're not millions or billions of individuals. We're networks. Exactly, our Our universal consciousness. We like to tell stories. We do. And these stories, they don't parallel because you heard it from a friend. And I'm talking about not necessarily abduction stories, but how we have all the different stories we we talk about from all over the world. And they have these common themes. Which is why folklorists have the best job ever. Because they draw them out and they put them together. And they look at the way... That the mind, the human mind, is naturally inclined to spin out a story. Yes. And it does touch on something that is innately human. It's the way that we, that our imagination works. It's this very deep unifying force that puts elements together and creates a believable story that feels real. And it's why the abduction stories have stuck. Because they touch on something so human. Right, they're not just a UFO or a crash landing or a government conspiracy. They become personal experiences. And with it becoming a personal story, a story about your neighbor or a story about someone in town that got taken away by the fae folk or that got abducted, these stories get a new life with the same old themes. And they're still asking the same questions. So when stories become personal, when we are intimately involved in the narrative, when we can imagine ourselves in that person's shoes, that's not just a story. That's not just a story. 